Blog Talk Radio. Where's my theme? Where's my theme? Oh, this is great. Is this how we're going to start today off? I'm not going to have my theme playing? Okay, it's going to be one of those days, is it? All right, let me uh, scroll down here. Now, why would that go off? I did a bunch of audio stuff yesterday, but it shouldn't, uh, it shouldn't go off. All right, hang on. Fortunately, show opening, show opening, show opening. Let's play it now. Hello and welcome to Action Radio. This is Greg Penglis coming to you from the historic district of downtown Milton on the banks of the beautiful Blackwater River. And now let's get into Action Radio. Okay, fine. It's going to be one of those days, is it? <laughs> so now I have to check. I just made a big note to myself. Check the audio clips. We have a whole section of audio clips. I can do pretty much whatever I want. I, I learned how to do uh, radio production at Ohlone College in Fremont, California. Thank you very much, Ohlone College, where I was actually a college DJ. Um, I found my original air check, which is hysterical, you know, especially when I'm talking about, um, you know, groups I've never heard of and people I've never heard of, Ariana Grande, 21 Pilots. I'm announcing these things on this, this little college station. And my big, deep, you know, at that point, 56-year-old voice <laughs> was coming out across Ohlone College when we had a bunch of 18-year-old, 19-year-old kids um, that were in radio production, uh, in radio broadcasting also. It really was hysterical. So I was the oldest student by far. I think I was older than, uh, probably about the same age as the uh, the, the people who are teaching it who already had long radio careers. And I'm just like starting out, you know, at 56. So that was, that was six, that was seven years ago. Um, so remember it was like it was yesterday. It was really fun. The, the things that really stick out in your mind, are, are the challenges and the exciting things you do. Anyway, so the, all that started from uh, uh, the, um, the fact that my audio didn't uh, play this morning. So now I have to go every once in a while that happens, but I did do some audio uh, deleting of things. I just don't play anymore. So I had to move those. I don't know how much capacity this thing has, but as long as it has capacity, I'm going to keep doing it. Anyway, so hopefully I'm broadcasting too because <laughs> we still don't have uh, DB meters um, on, my, uh, on the station uh, as much as I would, would have hoped that they would have put them on by now. But we're still working on that. Actually, uh, BlockTruck's starting to listen. So because BlockTruck is starting to listen, it looks like we're going to have a chance to actually uh, get some of the things I asked for. And the, the biggest one being, I won't tell you about the other ones because it's all kind of internal stuff uh, with Block Talk, but the, the biggest one I want are DB meters. So every studio, every production board has decibel meters. That's what DB stands for. So they have decibel meters to, to let you know if you're broadcasting, and it just gives you the strength of the signal. So if I knew I had an outgoing signal, chances are I would know if something was going on. But uh, we've had things happen where, and this is why I want a producer too, so I'll know instantly if I'm not broadcasting. So I'm working on that as well. Anyway, um, but... Um, once we get this all, all coordinated uh, and I have you know, a, a voice listening to my voice, it's like, okay, good, now we'll know. So a lot of times we're just kind of broadcasting in the blind, hoping for the best, like now. Uh, we don't have um, um, Marco in the Netherlands. He's usually on, but I think he's on vacation for a couple weeks. And Piaki usually calls in too, so he's, he's a great check. He'll let me know if I'm not broadcasting. So that's, that's, uh, he's fabulous about that, uh, as well as calling in with some really you know, interesting and fun comments that we talk about. All right, so revelation time. And I'm going to put a, I'm going to make a Substack article about this right after the show. Well, maybe I probably lunch at that point. My, my dinner is your lunchtime because <laughs> I'm up at four. So it's a, it's a very weird schedule I'm on, but it seems to work out. All right. So I'm thinking about Trump and I'm thinking about, you know, all these ridiculous bogus charges. And I'm thinking about the fact that the GOP geldings haven't brought a single, um, 
charge against any Democrat, which is horrible at this point, because, you know, this is what the Democrats are doing, what they're doing. It's like a serial killer. And to stop the serial killer, they keep killing. Until you stop the Democrats, they're going to keep lumping charges under Donald Trump that are totally bogus. You know, I was watching uh, Jack Smith, the, uh, the bogus prosecutor, the, uh, the insane ideologically driven, you know, apparatchik of the Democrats who colludes with the White House to prosecute Donald Trump on bogus charges to keep him off the ballot. So they can't win, you know, in, in a fair election. We know that. They, they admit that every day by what they do. We know the 2020 election was stolen. They admit that every day by what they do, <laughs> by, tell, by arresting people who say that the 2020 election was stolen. And so this is what they're going after Trump for. They're going after Trump because he changes the system. Uh, I was just watching a, another news story on One American News about how the border uh, was totally uh, changed and, and how they were talking actually about the Israeli wall, which is very successful, and also it removes uh, a lot of the crime. Because it stops all the drugs and a lot of human trafficking that otherwise would cross. Of course, we have all that now because we don't have a border, uh, courtesy of uh, Joe Biden and the uh, Marxist regime that has uh, taken the White House by, uh, by force, you know, the force of stealing the election. That's force, by the way. You know, do they use guns to do it? No. They used computers and they used uh, trucks to bring in ballots and they used, uh, you know, just outright theft and kinds of things. Uh, but it's still violent. It's still a violent takeover, but the violence is all internal. It's all, it's all computer. It's all, you know, it's, it's not uh, physical violence, but it's still violence nonetheless. Taking the government of the United States over is a violent act, no matter how you look at it. And until these people are all brought to justice, then uh, we're going to have a criminal administration uh, in office doing things that are all completely illegal. So you've got people that stole the election arresting Donald Trump for saying that they stole the election. So that's part of the cover-up, okay? That's, that's got nothing to do with... Um, you know, with, uh, with, with justice or law or anything like that. So Jack Smith gets up and says, you know, that uh, Trump will be tried by a jury of citizens. That's not what the Constitution says. <laughs> okay, so he's already lying about that. And nobody seemed to catch that on One American News. I was kind of surprised. No, you're not judged by a jury of citizens. You're judged by a jury of your peers. He doesn't want Donald Trump judged by a jury of his peers. In other words, conservative billionaires like himself, entrepreneurs, independent people, Folks like that. Those are his peers. Those are the people who should be judging him. The whole point of being judged by your peers is your peers will be uh, either fair or harsh on you, depending on what you've done. So in other words, if the justice system is unfair, your peers will, will help you and protect you. If the justice system is right on target, then your peers want nothing to do with you. <laughs> They're going to convict you. And so a jury of your peers is an essential part of our justice system. If you're judged simply by citizens, and you go out and pick a bunch of people that are automatically against you, that's a biased trial, it's a mistrial, it's a non-trial. It's not a trial at all. So the idea that Jack Smith wants to get out there and say we're going to have a trial for Donald Trump by a jury of citizens is unconstitutional. He can't do that. Uh, it's grounds for appeal, but who wants to wait that long? So I'm thinking to myself, all right, self, <laughs> Greg, <laughs> you know, it's time for a revelation. It's time for a new strategy. It's time for something new and different that will get us uh, beyond the Democrats, because the geldings aren't going to do anything. Some geldings will, but we need a lot more people. And so, of course, the movie uh, uh, Spartacus came to mind, and the I am Spartacus moment. And I'm going to put a Substack article out on this after the show. But I'm thinking to myself, okay, so Trump is saying the election was stolen, and they're, and they're trying to arrest and convict him. Spartacus you know, led a, a slave revolt against the Roman Empire. And so they crucified him. Uh, and uh, in fact, they actually crucified him. Well, I went, yeah, I think the film's pretty well known at this point. But uh, uh, who was it? Lawrence Olivier, uh, playing the part of, of Gracchus, uh, gets up there and says, I will spare every one of you. 
except Spartacus. Spartacus is the one who will be crucified. So if you turn over Spartacus to me, I shall crucify Spartacus and let the rest of you go. Of course, we all knew it was nonsense. They were going to kill them all anyway, right? So uh, Spartacus goes to stand up and then uh, play by Kirk Douglas. And then Tony Curtis, a young Tony Curtis, uh, gets up and at the same time says, I am, you know, Spartacus gets up to say, I am Spartacus. And then, of course, Tony Curtis, his, his loyal and faithful friend, like, like Sancho Panza, was to Don Quixote, gets up and says, I am Spartacus. And then some other guy says, I am Spartacus. And then another person says, I am Spartacus. And then pretty soon, you know, the entire army is screaming, I am Spartacus. The whole point being, you can't kill all of us. Well, of course, they did. <laughs> they did kill all of us. Hey, Pianchi. Pianchi just joined the conversation. Just want to make sure I'm broadcasting. So if you can give me a thumbs up or something like that, um, because uh, working on a producer, and hopefully that'll be in there soon. But uh, since my theme didn't play this morning, I'm in doubt as to uh, whether we're operating. I imagine I am. Otherwise, Pianchi would have said, hey, Greg, you're not broadcasting yet. Anyway, so the Spartacus moment, uh, that's something that Eric, was it Eric Swalwell or, or Corey, uh, um, who's the guy from uh, New Jersey? Corey Booker? No, that's somebody different. Huh. Anyway, black guy, bald. Uh, talked about an I am Spartacus moment, and it was totally irrelevant when he said it. He said, we need an I am Spartacus moment. He must have read that somewhere and thought it was a popular thing to say uh, because what, the example he gave, I should look it up because it was so bogus, it was funny. That's not what I am Spartacus is. I am Spartacus is when everybody stands up admitting to be the person that they want to convict. So I'm thinking, uh, ooh. So Pianchi's got a, a thing here. So, uh, the reason I read the, the, uh, the live chat things when they come in is because you don't get them in the podcast. So he says, how St. Louis overturned an election and why Trump can't and why Trump can't. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, so I'm going to do is I'm going to copy this. So what I do when people send in websites and things like that, I copy them, put them in my show notes so that I always have it. Because once the, the show is over, uh, everything that's in live chat disappears also. So I have a place that I put these. And let me just put them, let's actually put it over here. Uh, I, you know, it's interesting. I keep show notes all the way back. I, uh, every show has show notes. And all my show notes back five years, I've kept them. I've got them all. So I know everything I did. I go to any date, any show, and find out what I did. Okay, so uh, let me see what announcements. Do, 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 do. Hang on, I'm just going to type something in here. Do, do, do. And then I'll read Pianchi's next note. Anyway, let's see what he says. Uh, King Jeffries, whose uncle Leonard is a racist. Well, that's interesting, too. Okay, um, Pianchi, if you want to call in, we've got time this morning. I've got a guest in the second hour, and then I have nobody in the third hour. And so just to let you folks know the schedule, the first hour is mine, uh, usually is on Thursday. Second hour um, also is usually open, but I, that's why I like to put guests in that. And we're going to have a new guy, a new person to the show, uh, Richard Vague, which is an interesting name for, for his profession. He's an economist, former, uh, I guess, banking commission head of Pennsylvania. We'll find out about that in a bit. But anyway, he says debt is both good and bad. So you know we're going to have an interesting chat. Anyway, so he's... Uh, He's, uh, he's making the rounds. He's, he's got a new book out, The Paradox of Debt. And so we're going to find out just what, uh, what kind of a paradox it is as we, uh, as we chat about the economy. I'm trying to make economics exciting. That, that's tough to do. <laughs> it really is. But every once in a while, we have our moments, right? So, uh, and I'm going to be going into some, in fact, I found a bunch of articles on how the Fed creates money. Uh, and that to me is bad. Uh, and the, um, some Cato Institute stuff and also Adam Smith. We're going to start to do uh, maybe an economic series to explain some of the things going on. Cause I'm a, and a lot of it's going to be based on what we talk about today. So I'll find out from Richard Vague um, exactly what's going on. You know, and I'm not going to use jokes like vagaries. <laughs> I, just, I won't do it. I'll try not to. You know, it's, just, it's so tempting, but uh, we'll find out later. But he sounds, he sounds interesting. I've watched his videos, read some of his stuff, uh, and there are things I disagree with, and there are things I have questions on, and, and that's, what makes this, uh, that's what makes this so interesting. All right, let's get Pianchi in the line and find out, and then I want to get back into my AM Spartacus moment. <laughs> Pianchi, good morning, sir. Uh, you, you're trying to be an okay today. 
Okay, good. Well, the theme didn't play. So anytime I have something go wrong, I get suspicious. So that's good. Well, I'm trying to do blog talk. I don't blame you. You should. (laughs) Well, you know, because my, you know, when my phone, when the when the microphone just quit a couple times, I got a new mic cord. So it's that should be that should last for another six months or so. Um, But they only tend. I replaced them every six months anyway. Um, But uh, you know, this one, that last one went after about three or four months, so it didn't last that long. But they do. They only last so long. And maybe maybe it's because it gets plugged in and unplugged. I can't leave my microphone plugged in all day, so uh, I have to unplug it. But I don't mind buying a new one. It's like twelve bucks. Anyway, um, so do you want to talk about uh, St. Louis, and, uh, and then I'm going to get back to my – got the whole hour, so I'll get my I am Spartacus. Well, and, you know, go ahead. they say that Trump can't uh, – in Barr, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, his attorney general, which is useless, say that they can't prove – they're not proven voter fraud. Oh, but everybody well. else is proven voter fraud. Like I gave you this instance in St. Uh-huh. Louis where you had yeah. – Black Lives Matter uh, candidate was running against an established family, the Hubbards, and they stuffed the ballot. And the court made them have the election over again. Then uh, Franks was his name, F-R-A-N-K-S, and he won the election. Oh, good. So So that's that's what it's supposed to be, yeah. Yeah, and even if the cheating yeah. doesn't result in the person who cheats wins, it's still cheating. doesn't mean you have to hold the election over again, but if they do win when they cheated, you absolutely have to hold the election over. So this, this sounds like a good verdict. Are we gonna, do you know well, any yeah, folks that yeah, get them on the show? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I, don't, I think that was uh, maybe a few years back. In, uh, in back when there was some uh, honor in the justice system? <laughs> there, actually, there actually was justice in the justice system? Well, yes, when you push for it, you know, the right people have to push for it. And look at the monologue, montage that's out about Democrats complaining about unfair election and voter fraud and so on, going back yep. to the 2000 election and mm-hmm. every two years up until Obama. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fortunately, it didn't get anywhere because those elections were free and fair. Correct. You know, so but they were complaining about it anyway. No, it's not that uh, it's the, the the charge of complaining about the election is not what's going on. The 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 idea is to just stop Trump from being on the ballot because they know they can't beat him in a free and fair election, so they just have to stop him before he gets there. You know, it's like sabotaging. It's like drugging a racehorse before the race. You know, so they can't win. Well, it's, it's that kind of thing. And doing that, what are they doing? They're doing the same thing, if not worse, than what mm-hmm. they claim that Trump was doing. Mm-hmm. They well, say admitting guilt. that he was. Yeah. They say that he was trying to prevent Georgians from having a free uh, election. Well, they're doing the same thing. You're mm-hmm. trying to prevent Americans from voting for a popular candidate. Well, even if he was unpopular, it would still be just as bad. The thing is, they're trying to sabotage the vote, trying to deny him the ability to campaign uh, for the presidency. It would be the same thing if you're campaigning for. Uh, I don't know, justice of the peace, whatever the whatever you know, entry level, you know, city positions people have. You're campaigning for a small town mayor. It wouldn't matter. It's not. It's not the the presidency. It's the fact that uh, these people want to block him. It's an admission that they can't beat him, that they have to cheat, and they're going to cheat. Uh, it's also and everything they do against Trump, you know, now is is proof that the the 2020 election was stolen and they're covering it up. See, if it was a free and fair election, they wouldn't be doing anything. If they if they beat Trump, yeah, easily, right? There'd be, there'd be none of this going on because they knew they'd just beat him well, again. Another thing right? too. Uh-huh. Look at the ramification. 
is mm-hmm. when they say that he called the Secretary of State. Well, he's the head of the Republican Party. He's supposed to call the Secretary of State and make sure that they are getting as many voters out for their causes. It don't even have to be for a national election. It could be for a local election. Get yep. your voters out. Hey, as, soon as, I, as soon as I logged into Facebook, up pops a notice, register to vote. Oh, well, really? What is that? It's the same thing. Does it say register to vote Democrat? <laughs> you're, you're in St. Louis. <laughs> no, what I did is reply, and I said, vote yes. Register to vote and vote conservative causes. There you go. Well, let's, let's talk about it. I want to, I want to uh, tell you what I think uh, my revelation from this morning. And, and I was starting to develop it. Uh, do you remember the movie Spartacus? Do you remember the, the I am Spartacus moment in the end? No, I didn't look at that. I don't think. Oh, you gotta watch it. Okay, so I'll, I'll, I'll set it up again. So Lawrence Olivier is Gracchus. He's the uh, he's the Roman you know leader. He, he's like he's like the Roman Hitler. All right. So he takes over. He becomes emperor, dictator, tyrant, and he becomes Caesar. And so what? What? He, no, actually, I think there was a Caesar. He's like the number two guy. And so what he does is he goes after Kirk Douglas, who led a slave army. Uh, out of Rome. And so all these folks that were slaves and gladiators, the, the gladiators basically revolted against the gladiator leaders and camp and everything else, and they escaped. And then they went, you know, all over Rome and got all, it's kind of like Braveheart, right? So they go all over Rome and they gather all the slaves together and the slaves, you know, basically, I think they, they killed most of their slave owners and they just formed this big army. So we're going to go live free. And they told Rome, they said, look, just leave us alone. We'll go to Southern Italy. You know, we're just, uh, or the, we're, just we're not going to bother you. You don't bother us. Everything will be fine. No problem, right? Well, that's not how it worked out. And this is a true story, too, by the way, so you can look it up in history. Uh, the details are a little different in the movie, as they usually are, but it's still a great story. And so Rome, of course, couldn't tolerate being beaten by a slave army. I mean, that's just downright insulting. You know, you, Roman patrician, you know, the patrician honor, honor demanded that they, uh, you know, kill all the slaves. And so they do. They get uh, a couple armies. Pompey had an army, and uh, Gracchus had an army. A couple, I think there were like two or three Roman armies that surrounded the slaves and killed them all. And just before they're all, you know, they're all captured on the hillside. And Gracchus goes before the slaves and says, I will spare all of you who are still alive uh, if you give me Spartacus. Spartacus is the only one I'm going to execute. And so Spartacus, Kirk Douglas, goes to stand up. And he says, and he says, I, he started to say, I am Spartacus. And then Tony Curtis is his little second, like, like Sancho Panza, you know, to uh, Don Quixote. I am Spartacus. And another guy, I am Spartacus. And eventually they're all standing up and yelling, I am Spartacus. All right. And so the whole point was that uh, if you're going to if you're going to kill Spartacus, I'm Spartacus. You got to kill all of us. Well, that's what happens, <laughs> you know. But um, yeah, I'm not giving away anything here. The movie was out since the '60s, so it's uh, um, and it's interesting that Spartacus was written by one of the guys in the Hollywood blacklist. The um, you remember when they uh, they said the Hollywood writers were all communists? Uh, this is one of the guys that was was labeled a communist, and I forgot who hired him. I think Kirk Douglas sought him out to write the screenplay for Spartacus. So it was really, it was a groundbreaking film, not only because of, of talking about uh, the slave army revolting against the tyrannical government, but because they took a writer who was banned, you know, in Hollywood, it was blacklisted. He, he couldn't work anywhere. You'll never get a job in this town again, you know, anyway. Um, so what I, my, my thought, and this is where it gets to the Republicans and the conservatives, is that what we need now is another I am Spartacus moment. And so what I'm going to do, I'll be writing a Substack article right after the show. And what it's going to say is that every conservative official, every independent, every libertarian, everybody has to come to an I am Spartacus moment and declare publicly that the 2020 election was stolen and Trump is the president. If they're going to convict Trump for saying that the 2020 election was stolen, then everybody has to say the 2020 election was stolen. 
every public official, every Republican in Congress, in the Senate, in the House. Of course, most won't because they're gutless, spineless jellyfish. But those that do have a spine, usually the women in the Republican Party, should get up and say, yes, the 2020 election was stolen. They need to have a 2020 stolen election committee. They need to do all this, and they need to do it now, you know, because the session starts again after Labor Day. By the way, we're live Labor Day with our Labor Day special, traditional one. Um, but those are the things, that's, that's what needs to happen. We need to have an I am Spartacus moment where, now I've already had mine, I just bought it now. The 2020 election was stolen. Trump is the president. Go ahead, come arrest me. I don't care. Kind of be interesting, actually. Well, yeah, they should yeah. have that. There should be marches, uh-huh. marches in the streets. Just uh-huh. like you had the Latinos uh-huh. marching in the street when Trump got elected. Burning trash cans, busting out windows, setting cars on fire. Yeah, but we don't want that kind of thing. But we definitely, we definitely want marching in the streets. Now, how do they get them to do that? Well, how, do, how, do, want, how does Black Lives Matter thing, get? Greg. Yeah, how do here, they get these here's people? Here's the thing, Greg. Uh-huh. Nobody said that when they was doing it. Right. Nobody on their side said that when they were doing it. Mm-hmm. Hey, lightning strike, we don't want to get struck by lightning, but it does strike somebody. Somebody do get hit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I get hit here occasionally. In fact, my show got knocked out a couple of days, uh, knocked out on Monday about two minutes early by a lightning strike. It was within, I don't know, 100 feet of the place here. I heard it. It was like, boom, everything went out. <laughs> I was like, okay. We're, we're, a pro, we're a prime area for lightning strikes where I am. Um, so I, uh, I found a, a power source that'll allow me to continue when that happens. I just have to go uh, pick one up. All right. Um, so what would happen? In, well, let me ask you a question. How, how does Black Lives Matter get so many people? Do they just bribe them, pay them? Uh, does the media whip up the, uh, the fervor? You know, how does Antifa get so many people? How, how, do these, how do the leftist groups get people and conservatives get nobody in the streets? Is it just that conservatives don't want to go? They're not willing to pay for their, their, uh, you know, official protests. What's going well, on? Well, when what's, you what's interview, the interview the ones that's following them, then ask some okay. simple questions mm-hmm. like, uh, "What continent is the U.S. on?" and listen to the answer. Then you understand what people gravitate to them and how they get them. This yep. is because of ignorance. Yeah, now conservatives aren't generally as ignorant, but uh, especially because they they go to a lot of private schools and things like that, but. There's a difference. The left protests. I mean, they just do. They'll protest anything. You know, they'll, they, 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 I remember being in college. They didn't need much of an excuse to get a protest going. But conservatives don't. Well, they you protest know, they, on popular slants and slogans. Well, except that January 6th, when I, when I think about it, that was a conservative, you know, well-organized, or, orderly protest. You know, the, the idea was to listen well, to Trump speak at the White House and then walk to Congress and support the proper counting of the electors. Of course, that's not how it turned out, but that was the intent. And that was a peaceful, you know, Republican, conservative, uh, not protest, but actual support. This is the thing people don't understand. They weren't protesting the, the Congress. They were supporting the Congress. It was the Congress that wasn't supporting the people or the Constitution. And that's why the people were there. But that was, that was, pretty, that was a decent event until well, uh, had- it was taken over by the FBI and the, you know, the, the mercenaries. Yeah. Well, that's the way it was playing in the beginning. You had three groups of people there. You had Alex Jones' group that assembled on, I guess it was the west side of the Capitol, east, west, east, west. Yeah, they assembled on the south side of the Capitol. You had Trump's group, who was about uh, three-quarters of an hour walk away from the Capitol. 
Then you mm-hmm. had the group that was at the Capitol that was a contentious group, an op-ed group that was doing what they was doing. Yeah, the operatives, they were taking down the restricted offenses. They had the guy up in the tower, you know, ordering people in. You had the Capitol Hill police opening the, the doors that nobody would have gotten through if they just left them locked. <laughs> this is the funny part, too. Uh, Capitol Police admitted that they were told to open the doors, and they were basically pushing people into the Capitol. They needed those people in the Capitol in order to complete the coup under the Capitol. Did you listen to when we had Chadwick Moore on last week? He was on Thursday. Uh, he was the guy that wrote the biography on, on Tucker. He didn't know that there was nothing in the congressional record about what happened from the time that the, the coup started, you know, with the Arizona, uh, the announcing of Arizona um, elector count, uh, and seven hours later. I actually sent it to him. I sent him the congressional record. You know, and this, that would be a great thing. Well, you got one other element, too. Uh-huh. And that element is the racist, systemic racist, news media, especially the main news media. They uh-huh. are systemic in their racism with their bias, slanted, one-view way of reporting, and the usage of buzzwords that spur emotion. And I wouldn't doubt it wasn't in the congressional record. Like I said before, the uh, ratification of the 13th and 14th Amendment, if you look at those in attendance who voted, they didn't have enough to carry it over. That'd be interesting. Uh, you could, if you want to send me the, anything you have on that, that'd be that'd be worth discussing at some point. Um, we could do that. Uh, I have the time after Derek, so what we might do is introduce it during like Derek's last, you know, five ten minutes uh, on one of his Fridays, and we'll go into the economics of, of the income tax and things like that. No, thirteenth was different. Okay, I'm getting my amendments confused. I'm sorry. We should do that on our own. I was thinking the the income tax amendment. That's the seventeenth amendment or the sixteenth? I think it's sixteenth. Anyway, my apologies. But, yeah, I mean, that's worth talking about. That's worth investigating. Any of these things, uh, the Federal Reserve Act, you know, uh, I think is in question, but definitely the income tax amendment. I've heard a lot of questions. And these used to be discussions. These mm-hmm. used to be discussions uh, years ago because it was enough of a discussion that it made me do the investigation. And you can mm-hmm. go and pull up those uh, of those uh, proceedings of votes and issues that was being talked there of record, and you just count the A's, the I's, and count the A's. And uh, the, the I's was not the percentage that they should have been in order to carry the amendment. Yeah, vote fraud, people don't realize that vote fraud goes back to our the origins in this country. People have been cheating on elections since the very first election. You know, this is not something that is new. And so uh, both parties, but primarily the Democrats, have been practicing vote fraud, you know, for, for almost 200 years. So they've changed the technology, but the, but the basic intent hasn't changed, that it's all about power. It's about stealing the elections. You know, it's just uh, it's fascinating how, how all this has uh, come about. But there's nothing new about Democrats stealing elections. You know, so the idea and then and talking you about how free and fair they were. Uh-huh. Kentucky didn't ratify the 14th Amendment until, I think, 1976. And I think Mississippi finally did in 1995. I mean, if I'm not sure. Well, you had some modern states. I think even New Jersey. But you had modern states whose legislature at the time did not ratify. And then finally, just within, what, 1995, 28 (laughs) years ago? That's funny. That's funny. Well, once you get three cars of the states, it doesn't matter. It's like voting for a bill after it's already passed. I mean, it's symbolic. 
they you know, didn't they don't have too far behind the, of the states, Greg. When, they, oh, when oh. the count went down. Oh, okay. So you that's, guys no, don't pay attention. What is it? You know, I'm not jumping on you. What is it nowadays? Is it twisting the air? Is it the shots? Is it the contrail? People don't see me like want to pay attention. They just skip over things. Okay, so so which issues? So, all right. No, this is this is a this is a good point. So so uh, the I see the conservatives coming to to two camps, or not conservatives, but just there are people that uh, the there's like a line. Josie is on the other side of the line on most of her issues. Uh, that the the military intelligence folks that are combining with Trump, they're in charge of everything. Space Force is in control, and they're going to come riding in and put a, a new dictatorship on top of the old dictatorship and fix everything. I don't believe that for a second. Sorry, Josie. Uh, well, contract. you know, when I studied well, this, on. guess what? What? When I studied this, I was voting Democrat. Oh, yeah. Oh, I, you know, I mean, that makes sense. Coming from a liberal Democrat area, I imagine most of the people you knew and most of your family were Democrats. So in other words, to be a Republican, especially a black conservative Republican these days, you have to go against, you know, 90 to 95 percent of black Americans who are Democrats. But that's changing. So black Republicans are so popular now because they, cause, uh, y'all can say things that white Republicans can't say because they'd be called racist. <laughs> you know, there was a, there was a, a, a black uh, reverend who was uh, standing before, I think it was New Jersey. He goes around the country speaking. He was on the One American News also last night. And he was talking, he was reading from one of these sex books that's in uh, junior highs or even middle schools. And the, the school board stopped. You can't read that. You can't read that. So wait a minute. You, you, 10-year-olds are reading this. Why can't I read it? And eventually got the police and threw him out. But again, um, I, I think that uh, in many ways, black conservatives are, are almost, I don't want to say being used by the Republicans, but are able to get messages out that white Republicans either can't or don't want to say. Because, you know, because the Democrats don't want to accuse black Republicans of being racist. So then they come up with uh, the, the thing that blacks are really white supremacists. And then it's okay, because as long as you put white in the sentence, then it's okay to say anything you want. So if you label Larry Elder and this gentleman, who's the reverend, and some of these other folks as white supremacists, even though they're black, then it becomes somehow okay to the Democrats' psychology that because you're complaining against white people, you're not being racist, even though the people you're talking about are black. Can you explain that? That's weird. Well, see, that's here's the thing. Like, uh-huh. like what you have, uh, the uh, where they prevent you from using free speech. The news media do it. You know how they do it? Because when they print a story mm-hmm. and you go into the story, like MSNBC or like Microsoft, uh, Microsoft mm-hmm. they want you to join and pay for a subscription before you can not only read the story, but they don't allow you to comment on what you just read. Yep. And if you do comment or get the comment, it's very, very uh, strictly monitored, uh, strictly concerned. That mm-hmm. there is denying people of their free speech. Well, yeah, but well, take Substack, for example. I'm on Substack. And some of the people I used to uh, read, like Emma Robinson, she went to All Paid. Well, I'm not going to read your column anymore because I can't afford it. If I paid for all the things that I read or like to read, I'd be spending a fortune on subscriptions, and I can't do that because I have to take into account a large amount of information for the show. And yeah, so my right. yeah now my Substack column, gregpanglis.substack.com, which will have the I am Spartacus article probably about an hour or so after the show today. It's not going to take me long to write this. It's already in my head. Um, and if I if I forget anything, I'll just listen to my own podcast. Uh, 
But uh, mine are, are, you know, you can read for free. I'd like to have contributions, $5 a month. If everybody, you know, if 100 people, you know, and that's not many. If 100 people who read, and a lot of people, you know, the, the readership is growing, you know, would read my, my Substack and, and just pay $5 a month. First of all, I'd write more articles. <laughs> you know, secondly, um, people make their whole living just on Substack, on paid subscriptions. You can do it pretty easily. There's, there are people making six-figure incomes on the Substack subscriptions. Now, I don't need that. It'd be nice, but I don't need that. But, um, but the, the potential is there. But I'm, ne- I'm never going to have it paid only, no matter how big the show gets, because there are people who want to read things and uh, uh, they may not be able to pay for it. And that's fine. I understand. I never want to be in that. But you can comment for free, too. Well, yeah, yeah. on your stuff, but I'm talking about what a majority of the population is mm-hmm. with yeah. those major news concerns. Mm-hmm. See, if the majority of the population was it, with you, you wouldn't be having those problems. But what I'm saying is that for the majority of the population that reads mm-hmm. these articles, they are not allowed to comment on them. And I noticed that came about with the incident in the Ukraine years ago <laughs> when they overthrew the duly elected president, Yanukovych. Oh, Poroshenko? Yeah, they, they put Poroshenko in and then uh, – oh, was it Yanukovych? I, I get them confused. Yanatovich was the president, and right. at the end of CNN news articles on the story or anyone else, people was allowed to comment. Well, I noticed there was a lot of Russian comments, you know, uh, telling things that those in the West probably wouldn't know. And next thing you know, well, comments are off not only on CNN, but on other news sources too. Can't comment mm-hmm. no more. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I have an international news section. In fact, I just uh, post something. Uh, another story I heard in the news briefly. This is kind of fun. I hear the reason I watch the news is, is a lot of it's for story ideas, but I like to expand on them. They give a story mm-hmm. two minutes and I'll give it like two hours, <laughs> you know, so uh, or more <laughs> depending on the story. But apparently Greece has arrested 79 arsonists, environmental wackos that started all the fires. It's not climate change. And I imagine the same thing happened in Maui. I'm sure once uh, either the power lines started it, the power lines continued it, but there's probably a good amount of those fires were set by uh, environmental arsonists. You know, I'm sure that happened in the West in California and Oregon too. I'm sure it happened in Canada because all those fires seem to start at the same time. There's not that much lightning. You know, Canada's big, right? So you got a third of Canada all of a sudden has spontaneous wildfires? No. That's intentional. Well, if you got someone trying to set your, the wooded area next to your home on fire, how would you deal with them? Well, I probably have to shoot him. There you a, go. That's a threat. That's a that's a that's actually attempted murder. If someone's trying to set fire, you know, and the wind's blowing in your direction, and they're setting a fire, you know, upwind of you, <laughs> you know, that's 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 attempted murder. You know, so that you, you can have to yourself. have weapons to defend yourself. Mm-hmm. Well, let's, let's, isn't it funny how isn't it funny how they had an onslaught of moves and emotions and. Uh, trying to implement laws and suggestions to take people's guns and uh, deny them the easy, easy ability, ability to re, uh, have possession of weapons. And now all of a sudden uh, these things like these wildfires are going on. I mean, just the name well, no, is a threat. They're, they're different. See, see, we didn't have climate change 20 years ago. Well, we did, but it, they, they weren't wacko setting fires to try and prove it. So what this, what this, is more, this is like the people fire. setting fires. This is like yeah, the you got people fire. setting fires, which is a threat. It's a it's right. a it's an obvious threat to your living. So mm-hmm. the only way that you can 
uh, protect yourself from threats of your life is to be protected with a weapon. And they try to take the weapons away. And they the only way? the agencies, the bureaucrats. Yeah, it's not the only way, but it's, it's uh, the most effective way. But it depends on the situation. See, what I'm talking about, a lot of things can be done legally, like the whole point of action radio, so we don't have to use our weapons. So that we basically change the laws to take away the power of the deep state and take away the power of the government in such a way that we will have the, the freest country with the most prosperity possible. That's, what, that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. And so all these individual things are all leading towards that goal, the greatest freedom and the greatest prosperity for the greatest number. And that includes worldwide. And so that's what we try to do. So, so the guns are, are more of a defensive position. But if you want to be on offense, then you have to go after the law. And you have to go after the corrupt officials. And you have to change the, the, the system so that it actually works for we the people. So the guns can be used in its defense, like the Bundy Ranch. You know, a lot of people brought guns and told the, the Bureau of Land Management, you're not stealing the Bundy Ranch. And it worked. So that was a good use of guns. Um, I'll tell you another one. It was just interesting. I saw this on the news recently, too, that this, I think it was a Nevada um, state trooper in a pickup truck. There were these climate wackos were blocking the road, saying, you can't drive your cars, you know, climate change. So, so this guy ran his van right through their, their, their roadblock. But there were ambulances there. There were cars. I mean, there's huge backup. So this, this pickup truck comes up this dirt road, runs, and, runs over their little demonstration roadblock thing, turns around, does a U-turn over the, the embankment at about a 40-degree angle, comes screaming down, draws his gun, and says, it tells everybody to get on the ground. He arrested them all for blocking the road. I mean, that's how you handle that. It was a perfect situation. And like, oh, we're just climate activists. I don't care who you are. You're blocking the road. You can't do that. It's like in, in Oakland, when I lived in Oakland, uh, or actually San Leandro, just south of Oakland, uh, they were, the uh, Black Lives Matter folks would brought, block the freeway and everybody's coming home. They tie up millions of people. Well, that's illegal. They also have been arrested, but because we don't oh, Waco. do it. Well, Waco is a different story. You know, that's, that's just outright murder by the government, and they still have never been prosecuted. Well, that's not the first time that happened. That happened in Philadelphia also. Oh, um, move? move? Yeah, I remember move. I forgot the mayor. Who was the mayor then? Dropped a bomb on this house, literally a bomb from a helicopter. The black mayor. I can't think of his name. Yeah, I, yeah. We'll think of it, and we, we can look it up. Anyway, it was a black mayor who dropped an explosive device on top of a home. I don't know what he's trying to accomplish, but he—how he, many people did he kill when he did that? Like and people, people came was, out the house. They shot him. Men, women, and children. Yeah, that sounds like black government. men, women, and children. I knew one of the women that was involved in it. Oh, my God. Is she still around? Do you want to get her to talk about yeah, it on the show? she survived. No. She's welcome on the show. We need to know about these things. You know, if I had Randy Weaver's family, I'd put them on. Um, I was trying to get um, – I, I had a contact who has a contact who knows people who were at Waco, who were, who were either Branch Davidians or knew the Branch Davidians really well, trying to get them on the show. They don't want to talk about it. I don't blame them, but I still want to hear it. I mean, I'll broadcast it. If I get people willing to talk about this stuff and I can, I can uh, get their credentials that this is real, I'll put them on. I'm not afraid. You know, if I was afraid, I wouldn't have started the show. <laughs> so, you know, that's a whole different thing. I mean, I'm calling for every Republican and every conservative official to declare that the election was stolen and do it publicly. The lady you know, that, name that just came to my mind was Viola Plummer. Who's she that? that. She was one of the that. women that survived. Viola Plummer. Yeah. She's so like an activist. Who was the mayor? It wasn't Dinkins. That was Washington or New York. Who was the mayor? Of no, it wasn't Dinkins. I can't think of his name. I will think it. We'll, we'll get there. I, I mean, we can look it up, but yeah, we only got about 20 minutes before my next guest. Um, 
what do you think? Let's, let's do a little, little projecting into the future here. Let's say that some public officials actually do come out publicly, declare, maybe even sign a petition or, or do something official that says the 2020 election was stolen and I stand by it. Go ahead, arrest me. You know, I'm thinking like Dick Morris, Newt Gingrich, uh, anybody, uh, the House Freedom Caucus. Uh, I know Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert would do it. Matt Gates would probably do it too, my congressman. Oh, he seems, he's been pretty absent lately. He's doing a little, he's, I don't know what happened. I think he's been seduced by the dark side. It's the hair gel. We're going we, to have a talk with that man. Um, but, the, but other officials too, any, any mayor, any city council person, any uh, governor especially, Christy Noem in South Dakota would probably do it. You know, we need all these people. The more people that do this and the bigger they are, the better. Mike Pence won't because he's in on the coup. Um, Democrats won't. Uh, who is it? Uh, Mitch McConnell doesn't even know where uh, he is Mitch anymore. McConnell doesn't even know where he is anymore. Oh, I heard myself. Yeah, he's he, he, he's he needs to retire. He needs to retire. All these folks need to retire. He, he, can't, he can't do the job. Yeah, he's not there. You know, so he needs, he needs to go sit. He needs to go with Biden sitting on a porch, eating ice cream, drinking lemonade, doing old people do. Really old people. <laughs> yeah. So that, but anyway, so, so let's do a project. What do you think would happen if, if we get a sizable number of folks, uh, corporate executives, uh, Patrick Byrne from Overstock, uh, any of the big corporate people, Trump's billionaire friends, anybody to get up and say, you know, I am Spartacus. The 2020 election was stolen. Go ahead and arrest me. I think it'd be an interesting strategy. Well, you know, you should have Republicans uh, impeaching Joe Biden for what he's doing. You should have states uh, filing racketeer charges against Hunter and Joe for what they've done. Absolutely. They're not doing it. Well, no, they're not doing it. And see, that's the problem. And I was talking about that earlier. What's that? Wilson Good was the mayor. Wilson and Rizzo Good was the, Frank yes. Rizzo was the uh, yeah. police chief. Yeah, Frank Rizzo became mayor. And the family name was Africa. You know, Africa uh, last name Africa, Lyola, something like that. I can't think of. Well, it's probably uh, it was, you know one of those uh, fringe groups uh, doing uh-huh. what they do, and they always lose in the end. And they well, try to they try to uh, spur up a movement. And try to get a lot of people involved, it don't happen. Well, no, you can't move most people. This is why I make things as simple as possible at Action Radio. Copy the bill link and send it in. Most people won't. They'll they'll send a a meme of their favorite brownie recipe before they'll send in a a bill that will save them a fortune in money. People are weird. So I don't don't expect most people to do that. Freedom, and here's the dirty little secret. We've talked about this before. Freedom actually has to be imposed. (laughs) You know, dictatorships are definitely imposed. I mean, people don't want that. But freedom, in many ways, has to be imposed. I mean, the founding fathers, you know, the the, the founders of this country, the people that wanted freedom, that wanted independence from England, it's only about a third of the population. So in a democracy, freedom would have lost. (laughs) In a democracy, we'd still be a colony of Britain. If they took a vote, you'd have a third of the people didn't care, a third of the people that were loyalists to the crown. That's two-thirds. That's over 50%. So the third that wanted freedom actually had to impose freedom on the rest of the country. Now, it's a good thing. That was the right thing to do. But it still has to be imposed in the same way. There's enough people who who will do nothing. I can't have freedom unless I impose freedom on everybody else. And yet it's the right thing to do. So there's a paradox. In other words, you have to use means to impose freedom, even though you're doing the right thing. 
by taking away the power of government to rule people's lives. But in a, in a sense, you're still using, you know, direct methods of doing that. It's kind of interesting. Pianki? Oh, where'd he go? Well, yeah, it sounds interesting. <laughs> they all do sound interesting. You know, you was talking about the, the debt. Uh-huh. And uh, the problem with that is, is, a, is a lot of press. That's why I take constitutional amendments to do things like that. Yeah. And I'll tell you why. Because when you raise the ceiling, you raise the ceiling because what you find out that you're trying to spend more than what you allocated in a budget. So this is what should be done. The next budget should be 10%, 15% of the previous budget that got you into trouble. So you're lowering the floor. Therefore, you have to do that by lowering the floor by cutting out spending. Define that you are overspending and that you're spending on things needlessly is when you start spending more than what you have. Right. Then you try to get an increase in your credit line of credit and your credit cards, and it don't happen. Now you're in trouble. So the budget that we had that ended and uh, that came about October the 1st, next year that budget should be lowered by 10 or 15%. Then that creates a new floor that you shouldn't go over. No, I agree. I mean, the debt ceiling is is a debt elevator. With only one direction, up. <laughs> you know, I've said that a bunch of times. That's right. The, the debt ceiling is meaningless because what they do is they borrow above the debt ceiling and then say they have to raise the debt ceiling to make their obligations. Well, the borrowing above the debt ceiling was illegal. So what the rest of the government should do, you know, uh, and I don't care who it, you know, uh, the Congress should be, I don't know how you do this. It would have to be the president of the Supreme Court. They would have to get together and say, Congress, you have exceeded your own law. You've exceeded your own debt ceiling. So you cannot raise it. You have to cut it back to what it was. Supreme Court could write an opinion on that. President could say, look, I'm not, I'm not carrying programs. I'm not spending that money. I'm going to put it in the Treasury. <laughs> you know, so whatever the extra money is, I'm going to divert it to the Treasury beyond what you were allowed to spend uh, and see what happens. It would be interesting to see how that works because Congress does well, have the power have of the person and the legislative power. Big pardon? you got to have an amendment like they did in Missouri. Missouri's worked pretty good, but but they – but you still have politicians try to get around it too. They just like to spend because in this spending, they are spending on constituents, and constituents uh, to show their gratitude, they vote for you. Yeah, it's it's basically bribery. It's corruption. I'll give you money if you vote for me. This is why. Uh, there you go. Yeah, this is why government unions should always be illegal because politicians say, "I will give you money and good government contracts if your members vote for me." Well, that's pure corruption. So this is why government unions should ex- shouldn't exist. So you, you know, private unions are different, and, and they can spend money independently on campaigns. I don't care. I you agree know, with you. There yeah, there's no of, government unions where they can hold you hostage by mm-hmm. by uh, threatening not to come to work. Well, that's one. That's on my list of, of things that Trump has to do. You know, day one, it'd be like day one actions, and the, and the first one is to rescind uh, Robert, uh, John Kennedy's. Um, executive order allowing for government unions. It was never passed by law. It was only done by executive order. So you could get rid of the SIU, you get rid of the teachers unions, you get rid of all federal unions unions by simply uh, revoking that executive order of John Kennedy. Easy peasy. Wouldn't that be interesting? No one ever talks about that. We do. <laughs> you know, but we talk about a lot of things no one talks about. That's the whole point of the show. 
Huh. All right, we got uh, we got about uh, twelve minutes left. I might take a little break before our guest gets here. See if I have anything else on my 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 hit parade list uh, of things to do. So I'll probably do. I don't know how long uh, Richard Vague has. If he has twenty minutes, I'll I'll just talk to him. If he has longer than that, I can bring you back in if you have some questions, which I think you will, because I I have some some real disagreements. He says debt is a paradox. Well, here's I'll give him a little intro here. So his book is called. Oh, where's this book here? Scroll down a little bit. Uh, the Paradox of Debt, A New Path to Prosperity Without Crisis. I don't see how that's possible. Debt in itself is a crisis. So how you can get to uh, well, yeah, uh, prosperity crisis, through. Especially from, uh-huh. Go ahead. It is a crisis, especially for home, for uh, families. It's a hell of a crisis. Yeah. Because you become trapped. You, If you pay $1,000 toward a bill, uh, 20% of that. Mm-hmm. Is going two hundred dollars of that? Forty percent of that is going to be a toward interest. And paying that five months, trying to pay that off, you would yeah. have had almost accumulated the original debt. So yes, it's a problem. It's not only a problem to you personally, but on a government level, when they try to raise taxes, where well, it's hurting you again. Yeah. Yeah, I always think of interest as wasted money. If you and I, this is why I don't understand how debt can ever be a good thing, unless you make more money than the interest that you're paying, it's not going to work out. And I don't know how often that happens, but that's my problem, <laughs> you know. Because I mean, even mortgages, you know, uh, you know, at, at what point does a mortgage become useless to you because you can't you can't make it back? You know, like if, if you, I'm, I'm going to ask uh, Richard Vega about that. So mortgages, let's just say five percent. Mortgages below five percent, mortgages above five percent. At what point is the interest so expensive it's not worth buying a house? Because you're never going to make that money back. You know, how much does a house have to increase in value if you have a 30-year mortgage of 5% as opposed to 2% or even 7%? I don't know. I've never bought a house. I've been poor in my life. Great adventures, but definitely poor. (laughs) But those are the questions I'm wondering. Well, at least you're admitting. (laughs) What? That I'm poor? I've always been poor. poor all your life. Well, it's worse than that. I spent my entire working life looking for a, a, a career. I, could, I never got one started until I was 57 years old. I had my first, you know, real career job. Actually, flight instructor was, was on my way, but then the airlines all went broke. <laughs> so that kind of put a little damper in that career. But as far as, um, you know, uh, most of the time I've been told no. You know, I couldn't have that job or couldn't get this career. Or I didn't have enough credentials. Or I didn't have enough degrees. Or I didn't have whatever it was. I didn't have it. Maybe I was a white guy. Yeah, you experienced racism, didn't you? Oh, all this, I've experienced racism since I got to this country. <laughs> since I was 12 years old, I experienced racism. First got here, and I got to Lexington, Massachusetts, and they had the, the, the busing program. And the black kids treated me as white, and the white kids treated me as Australian. It didn't matter who I <laughs> Everybody hated me when I got here. I and they don't country. use your face. You, they don't use your face on the topic. No, no, you put my face on the immigrant, you know, saying, Here, here's the face of an immigrant, me, the white dude. <laughs> well, here's the face of a person who have experienced racism is what yeah. it should be. Yeah, I have experienced racism. That's, why I tried, that's the emphasis I try to put over all the time. I say the face yeah. of racism, uh, the victim of racism, ain't necessary. The ones that we always refer to and come to a thought when we mm-hmm. hear the word. Yeah. Well, I've told you the story of the, the, the airport director that told me I couldn't have a, a summer job when I was 16 years old because he's like, I have to hire black kids. You're white. I can't hire you. 
I mean, he actually admitted what he was told. What, what the, I mean, the, the, it's like, what, what, what we call that, the quiet part? You're saying the quiet part out loud? He actually told me. He said, I can't hire you. You're white. I mean, how much more racist get than that? <laughs> you know, that's direct racism. You know, and I'm like, what? I'm, what do you mean I'm white? I've been in this country four years. Right? I was 16 years old. I got here when I was 12, you know, and I'd already soloed. All right. So I was, I was, I was you know, and I, I do anything to get air, to get flying lesson money. I had a lesson like every two months, you know, because I have to, you know, rake leaves, shovel snow, do odd jobs, you know, work for other people and, uh, and scrape together some money. Right. And so, so I eventually got my I got to solo. And eventually at 17, I got my pilot's license. You know, but the, the idea that I couldn't you know, work at the airport, which would have made a good amount of money, I could have put that towards, you know, my flying lessons. I eventually did. I got a job out of the flying school. And, of course, that, you know, that went directly to lessons. But, um, but just the idea that, uh, that, that white people are, are, you know, discriminated against racially, the whole point of affirmative action is to discriminate against, you know, white guys. Everybody else gets a benefit in affirmative action. Women, uh, every different color except white. So the only people that get nothing out of affirmative action that are the only ones discriminated against are the white guys. Or well, the only ones not in the program. White that, what, what is, is so afraid it with of? whites that they don't complain? I don't That's understand. a good question. I, I just complained. So you don't include me in that group. I complain all the you time. See clips, you see clips where white women are being beat, full body hair, robbed by black yeah. males. No complaint. That's crazy. Uh, there well, in, in Georgia... In Georgia, just last month, the end of July, you had a, a black man kill, shoot and kill four whites in his neighborhood. Nothing said. But when you have this one idiot who killed the blacks in Jacksonville, That's you got news. activists that come out and want to blame DeSantis. <laughs> well, that's because they're organized. You know, how did the Nazis take over Germany, Germany when there were only 2%? Only 2% of Germany were Nazi party members when Hitler took over. 2%. How did they do it? They were organized. You know, how does the left take one murder, tragic murder, where a white guy kills three black people and turn that into worldwide news? Although at least the police chief in Jacksonville said it's, the gun, it's, it's not the gun, it's the person who pulled the trigger. So at least we had that going. But that wasn't, you know, widely spread. But, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, and you've got black people in Chicago killing other black people in Chicago. What, what's, what's the murders in Chicago? It's almost 400 this year already? No, it's, uh, well, it's the shots. The people that shot, if you was in an auditorium full of black males and, and said, all those who have, uh, never, who have never been shot, raise your hand. Nobody would raise their hand. That's crazy. Me. That's crazy. So why come that's not discussion? These are cities that's ran by blacks, even mm-hmm. at the state level, where you have a lieutenant governor, you have a secretary of state, you have a state attorney general, you mm-hmm. have police chief, you have county prosecutors, you have mayors, they all black. Yeah. And that's what they said that they want. We want to have the, you know what's going on. They exploit black populations with that rhetoric, talking about we, you need to have black representation. Well, yeah, you got uh, 70, 80, 100,000 people that's going to vote for one, two, three, four, five, six blacks. It's those mm-hmm. six blacks that make out. What about the other 99,904, 94, that don't? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's impossible to underestimate the power of white guilt of this. Uh, and I think people are just raised with it. I wasn't raised with it. 
uh, I had other problems in my family, but uh, and especially being in other countries, you know, where it wasn't that way. But in this country, you know, it's like almost every white person is terrified of saying anything. They can't even say the word black. You know, they, they, they just they can't. They, I don't know how they go through work. I don't know how they go through life. If you have a black boss, you know, that, that was telling you off and you're a white guy. I mean, I've talked to black bosses and say, wait a minute, I think you're wrong, <laughs> you know. Uh, and if they try and pull the race card on me, it's like, hey, okay, you can, you can say whatever you want. I still think you're wrong. <laughs> you know, I mean, I was standing up for myself. Of course, I got fired too. But uh, you, you can't let that happen. Deal with people as individuals and deal with issues as issues. And you can say whatever you want. Now, if you're prejudiced, that's going to come out. So there's prejudice but you against know, here's me. The thing too. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's not just whites, blacks too, because hmm. they are being exploited and yeah. used and abused because they are convinced by these people who have, like like uh, Akeem Jeffries, mm-hmm. who can talk the rhetoric, who can use the historical events in order to try to persuade. Mm-hmm. You per- stay persuading people to support them, where they're the only one that benefits because yeah. the same outcry, the same mm-hmm. complaints has been going on for decades in black communities. They still complain about the same thing. Well, and that's by design. these individuals who they're the one that's benefiting. They got mm-hmm. the money the, and the salary. They got the health benefits. They got the mm-hmm. retirement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is all by design. There was an interesting uh, black commentator I was on uh, last night. I don't know it was Newsmax or One American News. He was talking about the fact that you look at the way that politicians uh, talk to black audiences as opposed to white audiences, liberal politicians. You know, or, or politicians in general, when they go to a white audience, they'll talk about, you know, uh, intellectual issues, the economy, you know, production, you know, jobs, uh, national debt, things like that. Uh, when liberals especially go to a black audience, they talk about, you know, putting you back in chains and, uh, you know, you're the victim and the system's against you. It's a very it's a much more simple level. It's very degrading and incredibly racist. Uh, the way that the, the same person will treat, look at Hillary Clinton, look at Joe Biden, look at anybody, how they talk to a, a white audience versus a black audience. And they're incredibly racist. And, and uh, you know, dumbing down their speech for, for the black audience. Now, there's proof right there that the Democrat Party is a racist party, just by the way they talk to the different audiences. Or when Hillary has her, her you know, her black voice on. Unbelievable. And that's not Let me give out. you an example. Uh-huh. You got politicians in St. Louis, like Danny Davis. Uh-huh. And I asked him on the radio program, what about the southern border? He said there's room for everybody. This is how this stuff works. Percy's okay. been there for a long time, so he has convinced uh, marginalized blacks to vote for him, okay? And he still do. But now he's letting his community, his area, turn more Latino and, and Hispanics with illegals making them a sanctuary citizen. Well, he's depending on those sanctuaries to vote for him in the future because the blacks are going to be gone. Blacks are fleeing, dying off, so on, so on, so on, killing each other. So what he's doing, put in place to assure a contendum of his reign in that area. If well, it's not him, uh, it's his family. I'm going to hold you up just because we have our guest uh, who's on the line right now, Richard Vig. But this is fascinating. I want to pick this up after we talk to Richard. I'll but, talk to you uh, later. Okay, well, okay, well, don't go away. I want to make one more comment real quickly, though, because I want to – uh, this is something to think about, that the Democrat Party, the chosen people of the Democrat Party were black Americans up until recently. 
when black conservatives start coming out and start voting for Trump and voting Republican. So the new chosen people of the Democrat Party are illegal aliens, and that's why the border was opened. Food for thought for And the reason again? that is, is because uh-huh. of education. When you have people that's educated, that's in uh, more professional, high-wage, high-salary job, then they see the benefit yeah. that they have where they are compared to where they're coming from. Yeah. See where they coming from, stymie that, stymie that achievement. One way they do it is the school system. The kids yeah. are not being educated. They can't do, they can't do math, and they can't read. Yeah. Let's pick that up uh, after my guest. And if we have time, I'll bring you back in with our guest. I'll, I'll find out how much time Richard has uh, to talk to us, first of all. So let me talk to you a little bit, and let's get going with our guest of the day, Richard Vay. So Richard Vague served most recently as Secretary of Banking and Securities for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania as the author of The Paradox of Debt, 2023, The Case for a Debt Jubilee, 2021, Brief History of Doom, oh, I got to find out what that's about, 2019, and The Next Economic Disaster in 2014, Richard Vague established himself as a clear and independent voice in the ongoing conversation of the, about the role of private sector debt in the global economy. I can't believe I actually timed that well to the music. That worked out great. Good morning, Richard. How are you doing? Uh, fine. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you on. This is going to be really interesting. Let me give you our, our, our traditional, uh, see if I can find it here. Uh, oh, it's, uh, there we go. Our traditional round of applause. There we go. So I, I have to confess that uh, of all the public figures out there, I was not familiar with you until I, I learned about you, you know, recently. And so now I'm curious because I love talking about economic stuff. We do that on the show all the time. So where have you been hiding? What have you been doing? Are you an author and you suddenly <laughs> became a, more of a public figure? Where, where did you come from? Well, I spent my career in the private sector. I was a bank CEO for years, and then I had an energy company, and then I was a venture capitalist. So I haven't really spent much time in the public, but uh, have spent a lot of time studying debt and wrote this book. So let's, let's leap right into that. The paradox of debt, a new path to prosperity without crisis. To me, it sounds like a contradiction. You know, debt is good, debt is bad. How do you have it both ways? So tell me about the book and how it came about. Take some time. I'm, I'm really curious as to, uh, as to this whole idea of, of uh, debt being a paradox, because to me, it just sounds bad. And so uh, as those of us who are especially talking about the national debt, um, public debt versus private debt, I've got a ton of questions for you. But uh, what is the paradox and, and what, what's, what are you trying to accomplish here with uh, uh, getting to prosperity without crisis? How, I guess I'm asking for a summary. How does this all work? I'm curious. Well, uh, we call it debt paradox of debt for a reason, as you've uh, mentioned. Uh, uh, we saw the calamity that comes with far too much mortgage debt in a very short period of time in the uh-huh. 2008 crisis. Uh, but economic growth is impossible without increased debt. And most of that debt is in the, the private sector. Uh, people think of government debt a lot, but there's actually a lot more private sector debt. Right now there's about $41 trillion worth of business and personal debt and wow. as compared to about $30, $30 trillion in government debt. So it's the bigger issue. It's the thing more responsible for economic outcomes. We can't have growth without it, but private debt can sure get us in trouble if we mismanage it. Why can't we have growth without it? If people are producing, 
you know, if we have, what is it, wealth is like the, the combination of labor um, on raw materials to produce finished goods, and then they go into the economy, you know, and they're, and they're sold, resold, you know, that's, that, as I understand, that's the definition of wealth. Why is that not a model for prosperity? Why do you have to include debt on that growth model? Well, this is a very important question, and we cover it extensively in the book. But, you know, if we all, if we, we have an economy and there's 10 of us and we're all making and spending $50,000 a year, as an example, mm-hmm. and one of us wants to build a factory or, um, you know, create a new business or something like that, it's going to take additional money. And the only source for that additional money, well, there's two sources. Somebody could spend less on something else, in which mm-hmm. case the economy doesn't grow, but for the economy to grow, they're going to have to incur debt. And we see that. There's an absolute match every year between the mm-hmm. amount that GDP grows and the amount that debt for spending grows. So debt, debts, people don't think of it, but debt is required for growth. Wait a minute. So, so GDP and debt are growing at the same Rate, but does that mean they're directly connected? Absolutely does. Absolutely does. You know, if, if just think about it. If someone wants to, if a company wants to build a factory, they're going to mm-hmm. borrow to do that. If an individual wants to build a house, uh, a new house, uh, there's going to have to be debt to do that. And then that new factory and that new house are the things that are increased GDP, and they're financed by debt. Okay, so let me ask you about venture capital. So if you're, as a venture capitalist, you find a company you like, like uh, my company, the Action Radio Citizen Legislature, the first show in the world to actually write citizen legislation and submit it directly to government. So say a venture capitalist came along and said, you know, this is a great idea. I want to make your station grow. I want to make you worldwide, which is where we're headed anyway. Um, would, that inc- would that be incurring debt if someone wanted to invest in Action Radio, for example? Would I have the debt of the venture capital, or are they just investing, expecting a bigger return on that investment somehow? Isn't that what you do, venture capital? Absolutely. And congratulations, by the way, and kudos. Well, thank but you. But yeah, the, 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 venture, the venture capitalist is going to take money from somewhere. We're going to take it from you know, an account we have to invest. But mm-hmm. at some point in the chain, that, that money will, would have been created by debt. Okay, so that's what I want to get. And to by the way, uh, by the uh-huh. way, by the way, uh, this is something that's little known, but we get into as evidence of this: debt in the economy always grows faster than GDP. In 1980, for the United States of America, for example, total debt, government debt, and private sector debt was 125 percent of GDP. Today, it's 260 percent of GDP. So it's so more than double. So it's not a, Please, so they're, they're not growing equally. Did you, I don't know if I misunderstood. Did you say that GDP and debt were growing equally? Because now it seems like debt grows twice as fast as GDP. So in other words, it takes twice as much debt to gain, to get a gain in GDP. Did I, get, did I very, hear that right? That was a very sharp observation on your part. Oh, I have so my moments. there's two kinds of debt. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's two kinds of debt. One is the debt for spending, and that grows in lockstep with GDP. And then there's another kind of debt, which is for acquiring an existing asset. So if you okay. and I went out and borrowed to buy a new building, 
Mm -hmm. not a new building, an existing building that was built 20 years ago, and we incurred Mm -hmm. debt to do, that's debt that does not create GDP. So the fact that you have debt growing and lots of debt with GDP plus a lot of debt to acquire existing assets means that debt, by definition, grows faster than GDP. And that's not just true in the U.S. Every single major economy we look at, that happens. Do we have a country out there that's debt-free? No, no, not even close. <laughs> okay, just curious. I was wondering if there was a model we could go by. Uh, but we haven't always had this much uh, national debt, for example. You know, it, it, most of it's accumulated probably in the last 20 or 30 years. But throughout the, the 1800s, we didn't accumulate a whole lot of debt in the 1800s. And granted, the government didn't do as much either, which is probably a good thing. So it just seems to me that we have this massive debt. Is there a way that we can function without that? I mean, it's the paradox. If, if debt is a good thing, it seems to me we have to make more money than the cost of the debt. So in other words, if you, like you were saying before, and we can bring us up to the macro model in a minute, but if you have, if you borrow money to make a factory, it's not worth doing unless the factory generates more money than the interest and the principal of your debt. So in other words, it, the debt has to actually make money to be productive. Debt. Isn't that right? And that would work for the country too, wouldn't wouldn't it? Well, it, it for most folks, it and in, in, in this includes business. It simply has to make more money than the interest payment on the debt. Not the principal. Most most lever, the most leverage remains in place on an aggregate basis. Oh, so, but let me let me comment for a minute on, uh, and that's that's why the numbers are what they are. Okay. Um, but but let me comment on government debt for a little bit. Um, yeah, please. We had a, ma- a massive amount of debt. Uh, in 17, you know, during the Revolutionary War in 1776 and 1780 and 1783. You know, we had a from massive amount too. of debt. So, yeah. And in 1812, too, we had to borrow from John Jacob Astor and Stephen Gerard to finance that war, by the way. Interesting. And, uh, I didn't know but, that. But government debt, oh, yeah. You know, we shut down the First Bank of the United States in 1811 which was a really dumb thing because we had a war the next year and didn't have any way to finance the war. So um, at any rate, uh, okay. here's a little interesting fact, folks. You know, in the pandemic, 2020 through 2022, there was an increase of $8 trillion in government debt. But in the exact same period, household wealth grew by $30 trillion. When government spends money, it doesn't disappear. It goes into household checking accounts. And, you know, it was that plus the flood of money that pushed up stock and real estate values that this three-year period was one of the greatest wealth creation periods in American history. It probably was the biggest ever. Uh, Government money doesn't disappear when it gets spent. It goes into household accounts. And households, by the way, you know, government has $32 trillion in debt. Household net worth is $150 trillion, which includes possession of those uh, government securities as part of that wealth. So, uh, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't disappear when it gets spent. It, it, uh, now, the fly in the ointment here is that almost the vast majority of that increased wealth goes to the top 10%. So the net worth of the top 10% has been skyrocketing the net worth of the middle class has been flat. 
So really, so what you're saying then is, is the government spending actually benefits the top 10%, especially since those are the folks that can invest in the treasuries, you know, the, the treasury bills, treasury bonds, treasury notes, I'm not even familiar with all of them, that actually hold the debt. I mean, how many, how many, how many American households own part of the debt? Probably not a lot. Well, to, be the top folks, to, right? to, to, to underscore your point, most wealth is in the form of stocks, bonds, and real estate. Okay. And uh, the top 10% owns 65% of all of that. The bottom 60%, thick zero, you know, the middle class, mm-hmm. uh, only collectively owns 14% of all those financial assets. So, it is heavily skewed, so your point is exactly correct. Okay. I think what bothers me most about the government debt, uh, and you talked about household money increasing, uh, that money is also judged against anywhere from 5 to 9% inflation over the last few years. So they've, they've gotten money, but how much is that money now worth? If you've gained uh, – well, well, let me ask you this. How much has been gained, and how much has inflation taken away from that? So if we've gained $30 trillion in household wealth, how much of that is lost to, say, I don't know, 9% inflation? I mean, let's make it easy, 10%. Worst case scenario. Well, that means that it would be $3 trillion. So instead of a $30 trillion gain, it'd be you know, a $25, $27 trillion gain. But the price of everything has also gone up. So as the wealth has gone up, the amount of, the amount of dollars has gone up, which is what inflation is. So the amount of dollars has gone up. But are you measuring wealth in terms of actual, in a comparable scale? In other words, making the dollars at the same year, um, or are you including inflation? Uh, and that not only do people have they've lost you know 10% right at the top to inflation, but every time they buy something, they're still losing another 10% every time they buy what are the goods and services that keep them going. Well, you know your your point's valid, but make me let me make a couple observations about inflation. Okay. First of all, it's it's back it's back down to three percent now, and has been for thirteen months in a row. That's so, good. So you know, that's good. Um, secondly, inflation and rising government debt are not linked historically. And that's a popular notion that you know, the more money we have, the more inflation we have. Well, we had a flood of additional money in two thousand and ten with the Obama stimulus, and inflation stayed near zero. Japan has been creating money in droves since its uh, 1998 crisis, and Japan's inflation for a generation was zero. So, you know, there there is no empirical link between government debt growth or money supply growth, and those are two very different things, by the way, uh, and inflation. And, uh, you know, what what our inflation this go-round had to do with the fact that Millions of people had to stay home from factories and couldn't make goods and services, and we had a shortage, and it's taken a couple of years to catch up. And then we had the Ukraine war, which kicked up. You know, it just so happened that Russia and Ukraine are among the world's leading providers of wheat, oil, natural gas, and a lot of other things. Mm-hmm. So the price of those things skyrocketed, and they've settled back down a little bit, and that's why inflation's getting better. But our, our inflation really related to... Uh, uh, the pandemic and war and not government spending. 
See, I always thought that uh, the the creation of more dollars, quantitative easing, you know, putting more dollars in, uh, it's like uh, I, I explained to my audience the pizza pie analogy. So you got a pizza pie with eight slices, right? And you say, well, let's let's uh, let's let's increase our slices. We're gonna we're gonna make more slices. So you make sixteen slices. But if you don't increase the size of the pie. You've got 16 slices that is the same size as the eight slices. Now you need two slices to do what one slice used to do. So unless, you're, unless the economy is growing, uh, inflation is just putting more dollars in. You know, each dollar is going to be worth less. You're going to lose your purchasing power. Isn't that how it works? Well, it's an, e- it, it's an easy thing to check empirically. That, that is the popular notion. I think you'd have that in the textbooks and everything. But we've got 47 countries that are large enough to have us have meaningful economic data going back, you know, in many cases all the way to World War II. Uh-huh. And we have measures of the money supply and government debt and inflation. And we can go look at this. And we we find that, you know, of, you know, the 30 plus, in, you know, and we found 30 plus instances where there was very, what we call very high money supply growth. And only seven of those were followed by inflation. So less than, you know, far less than half. And we can find lots of instances of inflation that are not preceded by high money supply growth. So it's not correlated. And, uh, and okay. you and I could get into a technical discussion of money creation. But really, when the Fed creates money, there's two ways money is created. Bank mm-hmm. loans is where most money is created. Probably 70, 80% of all the money that's been created this 1980s just been bank loans which is the main way it happens. And then the other thing that happens is the Fed can uh, purchase uh, treasury securities from the private sector, and that creates deposits. But that, that's really swapping out one kind of asset for another. When the Fed, if you owned a treasury security and um, the Fed bought it from you, that, that's not really going to affect the way you spend. That's, you're going to take that you know, if it's $100,000 trade, you're going to take that $100,000 and put it in the stock market or into a CD or something like that. It's, mm-hmm. it, you're not going to say, oh, my goodness, I just found $100,000. Let me go spend it. It's, it's your, it, it was your savings before they bought it from you, and it's your savings after they bought it from you. Okay. Let me ask you how much time you have. Just uh, I don't want to get too far in the weeds. I want to get back to your book a little bit before, uh, before too long. I, I need to get time? off in about five minutes. Is that okay with you? That's oh, perfectly fine. That's what I want to ask. Uh, so it seems like, uh, well, let's get back to the, the, the path to prosperity. So how do we get to, let's go right to the book then. How do we get to prosperity without a crisis? And what crisis would there be if we, do, if we don't do it the, the way that you, you uh, envision? Well, we're just going to, if we don't do some things differently going forward, we're just going to repeat the pattern of the past. And, um, you know, for example, and this is a very important example, in 2002, mortgages in the United States were at $5 trillion. Mm-hmm. By 2007, they were at $10 trillion. We'd made $5 trillion in new mortgages recklessly in, a, in less than five years, and Many of those mortgages uh, were to folks with no income, no job, no assets, the mm-hmm. so-called ninja loans. It was, it was reckless, irresponsible lending. It was easy to see, except the Federal Reserve does not look at loans as a factor when it is modeling the future. 
its okay. primary mo- model for doing that, called the DSGE model, doesn't consider debt at all. So, and, and, and you and I experientially know debt is a, is a pretty important thing, maybe one of the most important things in most people's financial lives. Fed doesn't even look at it. So, of course, they miss this hockey stick of mortgage growth. Well, we really, you know, in one of our books, we examined the 43 largest financial crises in the world over the last 200 years and the six largest countries. Well, every one of them was caused by runaway, reckless, you know, irresponsible lending, you know, including Japan's in the 90s, Great Depression itself. And um, uh, there, so there's a very simple matter of monitoring debt growth and intervening when debt growth levels are irresponsible. That could have saved millions and millions of people enormous amount of financial pain circa 2009 and 10 if we'd have, if we'd have been doing it. Yeah. Should the government be in the mortgage business, especially telling banks to make loans to people that uh, they know can't pay it back just for some political reason? Should, should we have Fannie Mae and, and VA loans? Should the government be in the mortgage business at all in any capacity? Well, I mean, it's a, it's a good question because clearly there's a bias, you know, among kind of a, the retail politicians to want for credit to be doled out. I mean, you know, we're right in the worst things were happening in 05, 06, 07. You know, lots of politicians were, you know, uh, lauding the fact that so many folks were getting mortgages, you know, when it was the worst thing that could have been happening. So, yeah, there needs to be some reform there. I, you know, if you didn't have Fannie and Freddie, you'd have, you know, I've studied the history of mortgage lending in lots of countries. And if we got rid of this, something else would pop up in its place. But, yeah, there's, there clearly needs to be some reform there. Okay. Um, just before you go, I want to tell you about uh, what we do, and then we'll get the book information on how to, how to get it out to people. Um, as I said, we actually write legislation here. This is a, a new experiment. It's, it was my idea several years ago. Published a bunch of articles on this, and we write several bills. We have a bill on vaccine product liability. We have a bill that ends big tech censorship. Um, I found that the actual bad stuff in law is actually rather simple to correct. You just have to find where it is. And one of the, the biggest bills that we have here is a constitutional amendment, which is that Congress shall not have the power to borrow money. I figure we can get unparalleled prosperity if we take away the power to borrow. Now, of course, the question of war is a different thing, but I'm thinking save up for it, <laughs> you know, plan for it. Uh, it's not a situation where you have to borrow for it. And with the wars being as immediate as they are, you know, if China launches missiles at us, you know, Congress is not going to have time to meet and borrow money. So... Um, if I can read it to you real quickly, it's just a couple of sentences. It says Article One, sure. Section Eight of the Constitution. Okay, Article One, Section Eight of the Constitution, Constitution shall be amended by striking Clause Two to borrow money on the credit of the United States. So, if anybody goes to Article One, which is the power of Congress, uh, Section Eight is the is where Congress can spend money and do things. Um, it says Congress shall have the power to, and then the second clause is borrow money on the credit of the United States. So, I want that sentence deleted and replaced with. Uh, Section 8, Clause 1 shall be amended by adding at the end, however, Congress shall have no power to borrow money on the credit of the United States, nor to print money to cover expenses, nor authorize the purchase or holding of securities, nor to authorize or permit any central bank, nor to allow any control of money beyond Congress. That would be a fundamental change in our economic system, and I think it would bring about unparalleled prosperity. What do you think? Well, you, you've, just, you've just gone to the very heart you know, of the most important power that any government can have. 
So, you know, you, for you to say that that's radical is not only true, it's an understatement. And, you know, oh. and you, you're correct in, in linking it to war because really banking, the history of banking, and especially the modern history of banking, dates to 1696 when the Bank of England was created. And it was created specifically to help finance uh, Britain's wars with France. And, you know, it grew astronomically, you know, because you know, they call it the Second Hundred Years' War. Mm -hmm. uh, England and France were almost perpetually in a war until Napoleon was finally defeated in 1815. Uh, the, the first bank, I'm writing a biography of the very first banker in the United States, and that was, the bank was called the Bank of North America. It was chartered in 1781 specifically to make loans to the government to finance uh, a lot of battles, including uh, the supplies for Yorktown and others. Because the government, you may recall, the government had been printing currency up to that point in time, and that currency had become worthless. Mm -hmm. uh, and they didn't; have, they were they were out of ideas. And so they said, well, let's just do something like the Bank of England did a century ago. And they started the Bank of North America and then ultimately the Bank of the United States. So you're talking about something that, it, and by the way, it's, it's fascinating, this period of American history, because the 13 colonies, you know, all these governments were struggling. They, they were state or colony governments. They were mm -hmm. struggling with how to operate without the ability to borrow. So you had this tremendous period of, you know, fertile creativity around different ways to create money and different ways to finance things. And the Constitution, the very, the very thing you're referring to, was really a reaction against the state's ability to create money. So what they were, the Constitution was doing was shutting down all the states, their ability to create money, and reserving that power just to the central government. That was a radical idea at the time, and that was why the fight about the Constitution was so so virulent. So you're you're definitely you're definitely in deep waters there. No, I listen. There's no lightweights around here. <laughs> we take on the tough issues. Uh, I didn't start this to to do that. But what I can I can do is I'll, I'll text you my email. Uh, and if you want, I can send you the bill, so you can look them up at writeyourlaws.com. I'll get you some information. I'd love to have you your opinion, maybe backing, maybe even talking about this articles on it, things like that. But uh, this I think would be a huge thing to do. The other thing I want to do is to get rid of uh, the withholding uh, tax income until people have earned their standard deduction, because it seems to me that you're going to get that money back anyway, uh, the money that's withheld. Um, so why not get it this year as opposed to waiting until next year? So people that are going to earn, be earning money in 2023, they're not going to get their, their standard deduction money back until 2024. So why, why couldn't they have gotten it back uh, in 2023 and not have it withheld until they earn their standard deduction amount? So it's what, 13000 maybe whatever. So the first $13,000 that people earn, there's no income tax on that, no federal income tax. But once they get into a place where they will have that money tax and not return directly, that's when you start withholding. Does that make sense? Well, you know, as a, as a taxpayer and a citizen, you know, I'd be delighted with that. Uh, uh, sounds like you need to be running for office somewhere. No, I don't. <laughs> you know, I don't. I don't have time to campaign. I'm not. I'm not going to shake hands all day. I don't want to fundraise. I don't want to have the corruption. I don't want some party telling me how to vote. No, I don't. I want to do exactly what I'm doing. We're creating a citizen legislature here that writes bills that Congress can't. They don't write bills anymore. We do. 
So the whole idea of this is that we, you can write a bill. If you have an interest in this, you know, writeyourlaws.com, W-R-I-T-E-Y-O-U-R-L-A-W-S. Uh, let's uh, feel free. You know, we're getting a lot of very interesting well, people working on legislation. Well, and then we just send it directly to Congress and government. I mean, the media, sorry. Well, you're, 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 you're a creative individual, and I applaud you, and I'm grateful that you would have me on your show. Well, thank you. Let's get your information for the book. Where do we find it? Uh, the title again, uh, websites, Facebook pages, social media, anything you want to say about how people uh, can find, uh, find your book? Well, it's pretty simple. It's paradoxofdebt.com is the site, or you can go to Amazon or Barnes & Noble and just look up Paradox of Debt. And we'd love to have you buy a copy of the book. We think you'd benefit I think so, too. It's been great having you on. Thank you so much. And I appreciate you answering my questions, all as detailed and, you know, off the wall as they might have been. Um, but uh, it's really good to have you on. Take care. All right. You take care, too. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye now. And that was Richard Vick and his book. Let me just get my book title up here again just to make sure I get this right. And we'll take a little break, and then we've got the rest of the show open. So uh, hopefully Pianchi will be back, and we'll, we'll, we'll have at all the issues again. So the book is The Paradox of Debt. A New Path to Prosperity Without Crisis by Richard Vague, that's V-A-G-U-E, uh, from the University of Pennsylvania Press, which kind of makes sense because he was a, a banking commissioner uh, in uh, Pennsylvania. So there we go. So let's take a break. It is 8.28, so we got a little bit of extra time. Not too bad. Take an info break, as I call it now, so I'll get you the contact information for the show and everything else. And uh, after that, I don't know. We're just going to kind of wing it. <laughs> Back in a bit. Here is your Action Radio contact and website information. The call-in line is 215-383-3832. Our show site is blogtalkradio.com slash citizenaction. Same link, live and a podcast. Please share all our shows. We have live chat at the bottom of the broadcast page available worldwide. Sign in to your free account and type away. We have an internet Skype line where you can call the show worldwide also. Please see the broadcast page for our Skype name. Call in during the show to get approved. Our bill writing site is writeyourlaws.com. W-R-I-T-E-Y-O-U-R-L-A-W-S. Writeyourlaws.com. This is where anyone can write a bill and start the process of it becoming law. My paid and free subscription column is at gregpenglis.substack.com. Please consider a paid subscription of $5 per month or greater. For contributions to Action Radio, please go to givesendgo.com slash actionradio. We have over 20 Action Radio Facebook groups. Use the Facebook search window by putting in Action Radio to find our groups. My public email is greg at writeyourlaws.com. Please contact me about advertising on Action Radio and helping our mission of freedom. Thank you for listening. This is Greg Penglis for Strike Force, your source for pure energy. Strike Force is a concentrated energy drink that turns a half liter of your favorite beverage into an energy drink. You make your energy drink yourself. Action Radio is an affiliate of Strikeforce, so our listeners get a 20% discount. All you do is add our code, WYL, 
to the discount code window at checkout. W-Y-L comes from our website, Write Your Laws. So, you can get your energy drink, a 20% discount, and help Action Radio change the relationship of we the people to our government. Not bad. Strikeforce is at StrikeforceEnergy.com. That's StrikeforceEnergy.com. Start your engines. Do you know your way around healthcare, insurance, pharmacies, surgery, alternative treatments and choices? I don't. Which is why I'm so glad I met Priscilla Romans, had her on Action Radio, and learned about health patient advocacy. She is the founder of Great Care. And now as an affiliate of Great Care, we are proud to offer through our discount code, WYL, which stands for Write Your Laws, a 10% discount. Grave Care saves you both time and money. They provide medical advocacy, consultation, advice, and recommendations nationwide. Their website is gravecare.com. That's G-R-A-I-T-H care.com. You can email them at gravecare.adm at gmail.com or call them at 469-864-7149. That's 469-864-7149. Great care, better health through better knowledge and advocacy. Action Radio, part of the ADHD Radio Network, the ultimate free speech zone. We the people give our consent to be governed through writing the laws by which we are governed and have the power through juries to nullify the laws by which we do not consent to be governed. At Action Radio, we don't report the news. We are the news. Every other show reports what has happened. We talk about what can happen. From the questions no one has thought to ask to the answers no one has thought to consider to the actions no one has dared to take. That is Action Radio. Well, that was interesting. <laughs> Actually, uh, I don't know if I if I overwhelmed that poor man or disturbed or, or somehow asked questions that he hadn't had before. But uh, I think I think I caught him a little off guard. And I'm not trying to. I'm really not. I'm just I just like asking the questions. But um, it's it was interesting that I think I had some new stuff, um, which is kind of what I do. Uh, it's uh, his books actually put out um, things to ask and and you know ideas and things that uh, uh, that you can you can explore. And I don't think I used any of them. <laughs> I do what I typically do, which is just uh, ask whatever comes to mind. Um, but uh, I didn't get to ask my big question. And of course, the, the idea of financing wars, um, I think, is something that's well worth exploring. Because I was going to ask him next if uh, you know if the Vietnam War, the Korean War, uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, any of these these what I call the stupid wars, the undeclared wars, the wars that were uh, done without uh, a declaration of war from Congress that were just done, you know, by uh, well they had the War Powers Act, which is unconstitutional too. So all this money was authorized, and all debt was taken on. Would we have twenty year wars if Congress couldn't borrow any money? You know, I don't think so. I mean, the, the, one of the big purposes of this is to end endless wars. 
you know, is to end wars that, that have no purpose, that they are just there for nation building, that are there to make the military, banking, government, industrial complex rich. That's not, that's not, you go to war to defend your nation. That's it. Well, actually, people go to, well, there's a few things, too. I mean, the, uh, defending your nation also includes keeping, you know, navigation and trade routes open and, uh, you know, keeping uh, the commerce flowing. And people do that or, you know, people go to war over natural resources. You know, people go to war over a bunch of different things. But basically, it's um, as far as a legitimate war, you know, you're defending your, your, your nation, uh, your way of life, your national interest, uh, your freedom. You know, that, those are the reasons to go to war. Uh, not for for world government, not for uh, exploitation, not for for making you know certain groups rich at the expense of others by borrowing money. So that's bad debt. Pianchi had a bunch of good comments. I really I was looking at them. I was trying to work them in. Uh, we just went off on these these different tangents, and so it was quite fascinating um, to to do that. I think I suspect that uh, Richard Vague is is more of a Keynesian. So John Maynard Keynes was the one who had this economic philosophy that government spending is good that government uh, spending uh, is necessary, and I'm not convinced. And so this is why I wanted to have him on to sort of talk over some of these issues. Pianchi, what did you think? I think a lot of the things that he made statements on were flawed. Okay, fair enough. For instance, you talk about debt. Mm -hmm. See, government debt is bad because then people are forced to pay for it through taxes. Yeah, no, I agree. But when you have personal debt, when you have personal debt, well, see, debt is eliminated by production. If right. you have personal debt and your normal means of income cannot eliminate that debt, then what do you do? You go out and do more production, get a second job, mm-hmm. start a little business or whatever. Mm-hmm. But the government doesn't do that. The government doesn't produce anything. Governments yep. don't build manufacturers and warehouses. The way the government uh, satisfies debt is by taxes, and they tax people. And what they're doing, they're taking money out of people's pockets who otherwise could use that money in order to eliminate their debt or get in debt for things that they need and still have the means to eliminate their debt by increasing their production. Well, if you're faced with these taxes and burden with them, you're stymied. You're handcuffed. You can't do that. No, I agree. The more money that goes to the government that could be used productively by the private sector, in other words, us, um, I think uh, I think the better. And uh, I wasn't so much, you know, inflation seems a byproduct of the problem. The, problem. the real problem is the government creating money. Because when the government creates You're right. money, not, inflation not, is a byproduct. Yeah, not only do yeah, they not produce right. anything, but they create money out of nothing. You know, see, when you and I create money, say we borrow, like, let's go back to the factory example that Richard was talking about. So you borrow money to, to build a factory. Well, that only works if the factory produces enough goods that you, you not only pay back the, the interest on, your, on the borrowed money, uh, the principal on your borrowed money, so eventually the debt goes away. And once the debt has gone away, then it's worth it. Because now you've got a productive factory without any debt. That seems like a good thing. You're right. The, the right? factory is production to pay off the debt that was incurred in order to start the factory. Right. But if you have, this is why I asked about him being a venture capitalist. Because if you have venture capital, that's not debt that the person has to pay back. If someone invested in action, I thought it was a great example, actually. I mean, I literally just thought of it on the spot, right? So I say, well, if you invest in Action Radio, the Action Radio Citizen Legislature, according to our trademark, you know, um, 
I don't have to pay that back. That's money. So someone would, uh, I guess, well, they, but that was my, my follow-up question was, was how, if someone invests in Action Radio, for example, right, make us huge, big marketing budget, you know, and then uh, how would they make their money back? We'd have to go public. We'd have to have a way for them to get something on that investment. You do have to pay venture capitalists back now. That's not, I don't know where oh, this do. notion comes from. Oh. Yes, and they want their money off the top. So is that like a you loan? See venture capitalists. Venture capitalists not only will uh, fund you and get the operation going, and they have uh, people who can study and know just as much about what you're doing than what you do, and they can identify uh, the mm-hmm. pros and cons. But if venture capitalists help you get your business back, you're going to pay back their initial investment, but the interest that was agreed upon off the top. Then you allow to go ahead and do whatever you want to do. Okay, that makes sense. So it, it is in effect a loan. I was wondering how they made their money, being venture capitalists. I thought they, I thought they had to go public and and get shares and things like that, but or or part of the company or some. But they do get the goods and services, so they get paid. Yeah, first. they provide capital in the venture that you're in. Uh, it's a right. partner venture, is what it is. But okay. in the in the write up, they put certain stipulations that you have to follow. Matter of fact, I knew of cases where uh, people, individuals, may look at a business that's flawing, that's faltering, then come to the business and say, "Look, I will help you get this business turned around, but under these stipulations," and they will yeah. do it. Yeah. Yeah, would see, have to, here's if another I... thing. Uh-huh. Here's another thing. Citizens, states can't must run a balanced budget. Why is right. that? Well, I was going to bring money. that up too. That, that's another point. I, yeah, well, they can't print money, but also states can't go into debt. They can't. They can't borrow. They can't run a deficit. That's right. You know, and so if they and can you do got it, some why can... states that don't? Yeah, you got oh, some yeah. states that run a balanced budget, like Alaska, for instance. Well, Florida, Florida, I think has a surplus right now. We've, we've got, uh, we got, we got Ohio money in the bank. A, Ohio? Yeah, Ohio. No, Missouri. Missouri has like an $8 billion surplus. Yeah, Whereas California is like $32 billion in debt. Well, yeah, because they're liberals. They spend money. They spend money they don't have. Um, but this is the difference between good debt and bad debt, and I was going to get into that. Uh, but like I say, my problem is the creation of money, creating money out of nothing, creating money from bank loans. So I know how this works. You know, pretty much. So, so you deposit $100 in the bank. The bank only has to keep $90. I mean, it's $10 of that, the discount rate, right? So they can loan out $90. Well, fractional. they didn't earn that. It's called fractional. Fractional, uh, yeah. Right. Okay. So, so they, they take your 100 bucks. They loan out 90 All right. Well, that's considered an asset. It's not considered a deficit. It actually is a deficit. It's a debit. But they consider an asset that they've loaned 90 bucks out. Okay. So then, the, so the, the, I guess as money comes in, they can then loan it out again. You know, they can loan out 10% of that because it's an asset, right? They create money out of nothing. He said banks create the, mo- create the money, right? So you, you deposit $100. The bank loans out 90 That's considered an asset. The bank now has $190. So they can loan out all but 19 <laughs> you know, right? So they can loan out more money. Then they have an asset of, you know, 200 and something or whatever. And this, this is the multiplier effect. So banks create money well, from bank do? loans simply because they what consider they – yeah, go ahead. If a bank gave you, Greg, a, a, a loan and you signed a promissory note, say it's $100,000, mm-hmm. the bank would take your promissory note to the Federal Reserve and borrow 90% of it, whereas okay. they make you put down 10%, 10% down, 
that, you know, that makes their books add up. So, yeah, it's fractional lending is what it is. The federal but it's creating money out of nothing. The bank, right. And they hold your promissory note. What is your promissory note? I promise to pay you. You know, it's interesting when I talked about the uh, constitutional amendment to take away the power of Congress to borrow money. In that bill is a bill that elim- – in that provision, it eliminates the Fed. It eliminates the central bank. It eliminates the ability of the government to hold securities, and it eliminates the, the power of the government to print money to cover expenses. That would eliminate inflation. There's no, way to ju- there's no way the government can create inflation if they can't create money. And basically, I'm taking away the power of the government to create money, just Congress to regulate money. That's a huge yeah, and, change. And the governments have to run balanced budgets because if you don't, you're uh-huh. putting this burden on people. And see, in actuality, since uh-huh. it's a government of the people, for the people, well, the debt is divided amongst two elements of society, one citizen, two taxpayers. Yeah. So if you take a $32 trillion, if you take a, uh, $32 trillion debt, Mm-hmm. That thirty-two trillion to make it effective is divided amongst the citizens of the country and also, in reality, the taxpayers because they're the one who has jobs that's go- where their jobs or wage and salary is going to be taxed to go against paying off the debt. Yeah, the problem is that the taxpayers who don't hold debt. He said the top ten percent of income holders, you know, hold have all the treasury bills. They're the ones that actually have the debt. They're the ones who get paid back when the government pays back the debt. But the citizen, the average citizen, is taxed, you know, on money that they'll never see, you know, unless oh, well, that's probably not the right thing to say. But they're, they're, they're taxed. They get nothing out of the national debt. Whereas the people that do get something out of the national debt are the top income holders. So it really, is a transfer of wealth from the taxpayers to the top income people by way of a debt that they invest in at top, make money and make interest on. So it's actually, they make money on the debt. So the top income earners have no interest in getting rid of the debt because they make money on it. Whereas the, that's a, well, those of us, you know, at the bottom, well, the, well, let me just finish this. The, 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 those of us who, who aren't invested in the national debt, we end up just losing tax money. We get nothing for it, the national debt, except we have to pay more money because well, it creates inflation. So we lose. Yeah. There's, there's several ways to look at this. Okay. See, you talk about the, the wage earner. Mm-hmm. It depends on how much wages you earn. Some people, mm. when I was coming up, I was able to save 45% of my salary every week. Mm. Well, that's because I had a job that gathered high wages and high salary. But yeah. when the government does what it does, then it effectively starts limiting the amount that I can save for whatever person that I should be, whatever purpose I'm supposed to be saving for. Mm-hmm. So, so when you say that, when they say the top ten percent, it don't mean that they necessarily are lending the government money through bonds and security, a treasury bill that is. Heck, it just may be that they're putting their money in a savings account because they don't need it all to survive or carry out no, what they need for their sustaining life. Yeah, that, that's the difference. I mean, people can put their money where they want. I wasn't, I wasn't talking about that, but the debt, the debt that is held, the, tre- the people that get paid back you know, for the debt are the people that have the treasury bills, notes, and bonds. That's what those, those things are for. What I'm saying is that the government shouldn't even, shouldn't even have those securities. They shouldn't be in the security business. There should be no central bank. I think it's almost like the conversation changed when I said that. I detected the change in his voice. It was very interesting. Well, there's nothing wrong um, with saving bond. 
Well, savings bonds, are, if the government wants to issue savings bonds, that's okay too. You know, the government is free. Well, here's the question. The Constitution says that the government, uh, that the, the Congress shall have the power to borrow money on the credit of the United States. But, it, 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 but if we take away that, then Congress has not stopped from borrowing money by savings bond, by issuing bonds directly, by doing, they just can't borrow money. But, but if they want to issue bonds to the, the general public, that'd be fine. But what they can't do is create a national debt through the current system, through the central bank, through the Fed, because that creates money out of nothing. And if you have money out of nothing, that, that means that it's worth nothing. So that's the problem I have with the creation of money. Well, if you create money that's worth nothing, then, the, then, you, then they're just numbers on paper, but it's not real wealth. See, real wealth is good services, you know, things that are produced, bought and sold. You know, if you produce a car, that's real wealth because you labor, you know, plus the raw materials, the metal, the plastic, the rubber, you know, the, the, the carbon fibers, you know, all the stuff now that makes a car. Well, the car, you know, that makes the, the auto company money and it makes the dealership money. It makes the salesperson money. Uh, the person using the car hopefully may, may or may make money depending on what they do with it, but they certainly allows them to do other things. You know, the auto parts places make money. The aftermarkets make money. The used car people make money. You know, I mean, that car could be sold three or four times. I mean, it makes money all down the line. All of that generates, all of that generates wealth. Whereas the government well, sucks the money. Yeah, go ahead. You know, what I'm, you know where I'm going next anyway. And say, so here's the thing right here. I want you to think about this. Okay. It's the printing of money is not the key problem. The key problem is the spending that has to cause you to print money that you don't have or that was not in the budget. Like this thing with Congress raising the debt limit. That mm-hmm. is totally ridiculous. You mm-hmm. have to cut the spending. Because if you, and we have seen it. If you raise the debt limit last year, guess what? You keep on increasing spending or spending for things you shouldn't be spending on, you're going to have to raise the limit again and again well, like and we, again. We've said this, that they, that they spend above the debt limit. They, this is illegal because if they have a debt limit, you can't spend above it, right? So they spend above they spend the debt above limit. above the budget. Right. They spend above the budget or they spend above the, the, um, the money coming in, the revenue. So, so generally the government takes in $5 trillion a year. But they spend six to seven trillion a year, and they have to borrow that additional. See, if they didn't borrow that additional, and the books were even, we wouldn't have a problem. And that's why I'm trying to take away. See, they never. See, the problem is they don't want to cut spending. I, we have to force them to cut spending. And I figure the best way to force them to cut spending is to take away the power to borrow. Because if they can't borrow money, and, and still, I wanted, I really wanted to ask that question. It's too bad we ran out of time. I wanted to ask, what if we have had the Korean, Vietnam? Uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, and Ukraine wars if we couldn't borrow money? And I bet you the answer was no, because every one of those had to be financed. Well, I'm really curious about this banking act, the 1696 British bank that was formed specifically to raise money for wars. That's a whole fascinating well, so topic here's, to me. And here's how they fool you. Uh-huh. And here's how you, you're a fool, and this is, is, is a tragedy, is because the debt is what was spent above the budget. And it goes into a separate column. So October the first, they start off with a clean book, but you got another column of obligation, a liability that's called a debt, and it keeps adding on to, adding on to, and adding on to. No, mm-hmm. what you should do is start off with that debt as a liability come October the first. Mm-hmm. Don't end it on September the thirtieth and put it in its own separate column. It's something that has to be dealt with. It should be dealt with 
first day, October the 1st, starting off the new fiscal year. Yeah, what they really need to do is, uh, you know, pay off part of the debt and pay off the, the interest on the debt. That's the first item. And then the, the what's left of the revenue, that's that's the amount they can spend on everything else because uh, they have to get they this debt down. There shouldn't be no interest on no debt because if you were dealing with your own uh, treasury, right. then you wouldn't have to have interest on the debt. Right, because there wouldn't be a debt. If well, this you is what were I'm to saying. do something like that. Well, and it, well, this is, let's get back to our guest minute because it was interesting. He was, he was actually more focused on private debt uh, than public debt, and it was interesting asking about the government and mortgages. I found that question quite fascinating. Should the government be in the mortgage business? I would say no, because before the government was in the mortgage business, we didn't have, you know, mortgage crisis crises, you know, until we had the Community Reinvestment Act. Okay, go ahead. On December the thirty first, you go to bed. You got a credit card debt five thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. January 1st, you wake up. They don't take that $5,000 and put it over in a separate column, then take your credit card ability to purchase that down to no zero balance. They don't do mm-hmm. that. No. no. If you went to bed on December the 31st with a $5,000 balance, you wake up January 1st, you still got a $5,000 balance. That's Plus not a day's how interest. the U.S. government does. <laughs> Yeah, plus a day's interest. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, there's so much and, I didn't get to ask him. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, here's something. This is a quote from uh, one of his uh, biographical materials. This is covering the book. And I, I didn't get a chance to get to this either. He says, med- mediating on the contradictory roles debt plays in modern economics. So apparently it's a paradox. So there's good debt, bad debt. Uh, it's, he said debt was necessary for prosperity. I don't think so. I, 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 would, I would challenge that. But I wanted to hear what he had to say on it. And you know me, I don't openly you know, hostile, go after guests, but I really want to know what they think. Uh, but he says, okay, me, me on the, what's that? Address that real quick. Let's address these points one at a time. Let's not pile them on. That is necessary for prosperity. When you borrow to buy a house, that's helping you to become prosperous, but you have production going on to pay that off, not mm-hmm. to just keep don't borrowing, 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 borrowing. Right. See, production is what handles debt. It's just like if you go out and buy a new microphone cord and you don't have the cash, and you well, you're gonna to have to either uh, cut some spending out. Mm-hmm. You know, you won't be able to go get that lobster dinner there in <laughs> your favorite restaurant in Florida and apply yeah. that toward the microphone cable, or you're gonna to have to go get a part-time job to pay off the, what that microphone cable costs. Mm-hmm. That there is. Is, is is the example he's he's making mention of. It can be prosperous. But the key thing is is that you have to have production. Production. Growth, well, it doesn't have to be domestic doesn't have to be temporary in order to pay but, off debt. Yeah, but I think it has to be temporary too. See the debt is, is only productive if it's temporary. If it's permanent. If you're always paying off a mortgage, if you're always refinancing your home, if you're always if you're if you never pay it off and get the benefits of the of the first mortgage in the first place, then it's not worth it. So debt really, we that was another aspect I want to talk about was the debt has to be temporary. So the factory has to pay well, off the that's debt. Not, it, the mortgage has it, to pay well, off the debt. What it's worth it is not is it, up to the person who's doing it. It's it's the ability to do so and the ability to live. See, you can double up on your mortgage payments if you want to. You can yeah. pay toward your uh, your mortgage payment, your principal interest, then put more money on the interest to eliminate the amount that interest is being charged against. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I heard also that, that. Uh, and, and mortgages, they charge the interest up front, 
You get a 30-year mortgage. Most of what you're paying at first is interest before you ever start paying the principal. So the money gets their extra money first. The bank gets them. You're allowed to do that, yes. But you can, like I said, you can make as many principal payments as you want. It's one thing that the law allows that. Now, of course, companies will want you not to be able to do that because it denies them of the interest. That they that's what I thought. I thought banks could limit. that. You could, it was like a penalty for paying off a mortgage early. Is that true? Well, they would like to do that, but they can't. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> I might actually get one. Well, I don't want a mortgage. By the time I, I, I get a house, I want to be able to pay cash for it. I'm not going to worry about uh, you know that kind of stuff. I've always paid cash for my cars. I'm one of those people that don't like that. I have some now. You know, well, that's because of action radio. When people yeah. do that has the means, they borrow from themselves. And they pay themselves not only the principal, but they pay themselves what would they pay interest to a outside firm. Well, that's interesting. Those that have the means. It's the same thing with car insurance. Car insurance is nothing more than financial liability. And the mm. state sets the limits. So you don't have to buy insurance. You can set a bond. You can buy a bond for the limited amount, or you can get a CD and deposit it with your Department of Motor Vehicles for the limited amount. Or you right. can go out and buy insurance. Yeah, that's true. I mean, those are all choices, yeah. Um, there's so much – oh, boy, so much I didn't get to ask. Um, bailouts. I wanted to talk about bailouts in, in terms of debt. You know, and the whole difference between free market and, like I said, he he strikes me as a, as more of the Keynesian that debt is good, that stimulating the economy is good, that government spending is good, and that's where I disagree. Um, but we didn't. I, I wanted to talk about bailouts. In other words, if we have a free market, can are bailouts a part of that? Can you bail out the 2008 the banks the, that made those horrible loans? Can you bail out Chrysler and GM when they totally screw up? You know, with their cars. Can you bail out New York City? Um, because they're, they're totally mismanaged. I would say no, you can't bail them out because I do actually believe in a free market. If it's a free market for me as a, as a, as a poor individual, then it should be a free market for GM. It should be just as free for them as it is for me. You know, we don't want socialism for the rich and capitalism for the well, poor, as, as the saying goes. So, so I want to I yeah. ask them about bailouts because I, I don't think bailouts should be legal. Well, let me um, say something about that. Okay. Bailout of Chrysler and GM is a good thing. For two reasons. One, Chrysler GM is also um, war manufacturing possibilities. And two, when they sink down so low and you buy, the government buys the stock, as soon as the government bails them out, guess what happens to the stock? The stock goes up. And then yeah. the government can sell that stock and reap a benefit from it. That's the way it happened with Ford. Ford got down to what, $2? Where is it at now? About sixteen, eighteen, twenty-four dollars. Yeah, they probably had splits and everything else in between time. Yeah, okay. So the government made money off of that. Yeah, see, I don't know. That's not their job to make money off that. They, they should. Government should not be in business. Government should do the necessary functions with the least tax money possible. You know, giving the you know having the greatest individual freedom for us. Some things you can't well, let go because look at the ramification. You got okay. pensions, people mm-hmm. that's retired, so on and so on. So there's some things mm-hmm. you have to deal with. Well, most pensions come in a union contract. That money is already secured for people. Well, well, yeah, that Ford pays into. Right, exactly. So if it ain't no more Ford, guess what? Unions yeah, don't provide the, the unions. 
Unions are not paying the pension. It's Ford that no. pays the, into the pension. Hmm. Yeah, I got, that's a good point. Let me think. I got to think that through a little bit because I don't want companies being bailed out, but I don't want to see people lose their pensions either. So, how would you handle that then and still have a free market? You know, well, you do have those, a free market. See, Congress has to vote on those bailouts. And right. as I said before, it wouldn't be uh, it, it, as long as it has an open end where the government gets paid back its money in this particular case. See, when you bail out a corporation, you got that corporation is employing thousands and thousands of people. If those mm-hmm. people was to go on the streets, now you got a bigger problem than what you had before. Unless you have a company that replaces them, hires those workers, and then the, well, if people are no, already you don't want to replace workers like that. That's no, I don't it. replace it. But no, not repl- in other words, replace their, their. Okay, they get so in other words, Ford disappears. All right, and, and so the Ford plants are bought by you know the the Smith Auto Company, and and Smith you know hires the Ford workers. So then it continues on. So then you have a free market. You still have – and then Smith would then pay into – I guess they would have to, as part of the, 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 uh, the sale or somehow, would have to pay – honor the old Ford pensions, you know, until those well, folks have passed on. What you're saying is that the Ford went out because of mismanagement, okay? So this new company that comes along, where are they going to get their management stock from? Oh, There's only so people? much this to go around. <laughs> Yeah, it's a good question. Well, it's getting complicated. Go, I don't no, know. I mean, this, going, is, this is a, this is a face good, the same this, problem. Yeah, yeah. This is a good discussion because I don't know. And you, you don't often hear me say I don't know because I usually do, but not in this case. Um, so that's a, that's a good point. I gotta I gotta think about this. But there, I don't believe the companies should be bailed out. On the other hand, I don't want to see people lose their pensions. Now, what's interesting is that companies that don't have pensions, that don't have unions, they fail all the time. And those were those folks well, only have know, unemployment. Somebody like a Lockheed Martin has to be bailed out. A Northwood Grumman, they have to be bailed out under necessary causes because they are a national security. You just can't do away with them and all of a sudden expect people off the street to come and start all over again. No, it ain't going to yeah. happen. you got decades and decades of due diligence that creates them and puts them in the position that they're in today. You just can't but, do that. But those companies, uh, most of their money comes from the government contracts anyway. So companies with a government contract, they have other problems. They're just mismanaged and bloated, and they waste money, and they, they cost us billions of dollars. That's another problem. That's an accounting issue, and that's, a, that's an auditing issue. But for companies like Ford that don't make most of their money from government contracts, they make most of their money from consumers. So other than well, the people that hold Ford pensions – uh-huh. Ford sells fleet vehicles to government agencies, intricacy pools – uh-huh. They do do that. Yeah, but other companies can do that too. Toyota could do that, although I'd rather they bought American. Yeah, you know. they, no, Toyota is foreign. You don't want your U.S. government no, I, buying I don't, Toyota. I don't, yeah, but there are other companies. There are other options. GM, Chrysler. It would be nice if we had more auto companies. This is why I was a big Orient fan. Yes. Yeah. We need well, more, we need so more American car cars. companies. Yeah. Well, what if we broke up GM? That would be interesting. And they went back to Oldsmobile. Is Oldsmobile still around? Maybe, I'm, maybe I've got old information. Oldsmobile was a division of GM. Yeah, but but originally it was an independent company, as was Chevrolet, as was um, one of the different ones, Buick, these, you know, Pontiac. These were all separate companies until GM consolidated them all. Yeah, the consolidation was for the good. You put more brain power uh, into one area. I don't know. 
No, I'm not convinced. See, the marketplace can't sustain uh, that. It just won't work. You know, it didn't. I don't know. All, 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 all the cars look the same. That's, that's where the problems are right now. They all look the same to me. So I, I, I think that's actually well, the homogenization. Well, in the beginning, one of the drawbacks of General Motors, the 1963 Chevy Supersport looks a lot different than the 1962. One of the drawbacks was that they changed designs too often. And people, you know, you had some pundits that was complaining about that. Uh, when you look at a Volkswagen, you're looking at a Volkswagen uh, several <laughs> years, but you wouldn't know it unless it had some identification on it. Say, this is a 64, this is a 63, and so on, so on, so on. I had a 64 bug. That was my first car. <laughs> this is 1970. You're uh, damn pretty- good car. It was a great car. Well, that one, that particular one wasn't good. It only ran on three cylinders. And I still ran it all over town <laughs> for, for a summer. Then I got then my, my Dodge Carnet. But I'd get another Bug. Bugs are fun to drive. I'd like to own one where all four cylinders actually worked. That'd be a kick. Nothing sounds like a Bug. Nothing sounds like a Volkswagen. And uh, if yeah. you've never driven one, they're, they really are, especially when they get wet and they get that musty smell to them. But they were, mine was like a, a completely, uh, what's the term I'm thinking, oxidized red paint. Have you ever seen a really old bug, a red bug, mm-hmm. where it's completely oxidized? That's what mine looked like. White interior, which was sort of white <laughs> you know, over time. Um, but uh, it, they were just fun to drive. A big gear shift, and uh, you know, you're whipping around, and pedals are easily accessible. It was a great car. I loved it. I might get it. Like I say, I want to I want to get the cars from my my impetuous youth, and uh, you know, and and put them back, you know, in a, like a a five car garage. <laughs> you know, so I get the three. I need I need my bug. I want my '77 Celica um, GT. That was a fast car. That was fun. And a uh, big old Dodge. So, uh, so I mean, really, so my that childhood. guy's discussion had some flaws in it. And uh, well, let's talk about I those. prefer to stay in the chat room and write about them. But, well, you, uh, let's go over your points. You said it takes production to control and eliminate debt. I agree. Uh, I also think debt should be uh, temporary. So to have a national debt that keeps in. You yeah. should try to get out from under as quick mm-hmm. as you can. Two things happen there. One, mm-hmm. you are relieved of the obligation, and two, you show a responsibility and the it improves your character reference toward mm-hmm. uh, handling uh, your uh, your debt turns yeah. when you do yeah. that. Oh, I've been debt free. It's great. You know, I'll, I'll get there again. You know, it's uh, it's a, it's a marvelously freeing thing. So I don't. But the idea that debt is productive, it's only productive, like I say, if it's temporary. And if you make more money. By borrowing that debt, you know, same thing with venture capitalists. If they put, uh, you just need to see if, if if someone does put money into Action Radio. If I get a big venture capitalist, says, you know what, you got something really good there. Let's let's see what we can do with this. I'm like, oh, okay, you know, because well, this is going to monetize. Well, uh-huh. It's not the debt that's productive. It's, it's you the company who has to yeah. be productive in order to bring in income to, to satisfy the debt. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Well, I, like I say, I would not. I, I don't want debt like loan debt. But uh, venture capitalists, that'd be interesting. I, w- I would consider that. I'd have to take a look at the fine print and see what it would cost. But uh, I fully expect companies like Glock and Ruger and, uh, you know, Chick-fil-A and Hobby Lobby, all the conservative companies, Black Rifle Coffee, to someday be supporting us, be advertising on this show. I've asked them all. Anyway. Well, believe it or not. <laughs> you know, what's that? Your traditional, bet, your traditional debt is better than going to – Ventures capitals who can be also called loan sharks because you okay. So ventures. so where where does a venture capitalist become a loan shark? Where, where's the line? You know, when they tell you this stipulation, that right there is more you you going to them 
when you can't go, you you won't get it from a bank. The oh. best options is at the traditional means, like banks. Okay. See, this is this is the world I'm not involved in. But one of the reasons I went into radio is that there's minimal investment. I mean, minimal, and there's no age requirement or or limit. Uh, and I don't need uh, several degrees. I didn't have to go back to school, although I did go for radio production, which comes in really handy so I can play all that cool stuff that I play, <laughs> you know, my ads and my, uh, you know, my, my productions and things like that. So, uh, so the investment, the, the, the monetary investment to get into this business, and this is one of the reasons I chose it, was minimal. You know, I took a couple of courses at a community well, college. You know, I, I uh, mm-hmm. subscribed to Blog Talk, and uh, I got a couple of sponsors, but I need more. You know, I need experience. a lot more. Well, I had As some one thing that circumvents degrees. The thing that yeah. circumvents degrees is experience. Yeah, I had eight years of tour guiding. I was used to microphone work, so that wasn't an issue. I was used to improvising. Yeah, so you, you wouldn't know. have to go to a junior. You wouldn't have to go get a, a degree in tour guide. You already had the experience. Well, no, I wouldn't. Need, I wouldn't need a degree in radio broadcasting or communications because I already had. I had you know eight years of of uh, that. Uh, plus, in my crazier days, in my 20s, I did singing telegrams for a couple of years. You want to talk about communicating? That was hysterical, especially when I got to yeah. – uh, I talked to someone with Nancy Pelosi where I got to sit in her lap and you know, sing congratulations you know, when she got to Congress. 1987. Never forget it. That's a funny story. Somewhere there's a picture of me doing that. And I'm, I want to find the person, the, the family that has a picture. I want to, that'll be all before be my, my new Facebook cover. <laughs> <laughs> me sitting in Pelosi's lap, 1987. But we'll, we'll get that. My big, you know, Eastern Onion red. The only know. thing that could be the experience of youth. <laughs> that was a fun time. I listen. I've had a crazy life. You know, like I say, I haven't owned anything. I've always been poor. But I've, I, there's there's a lot of things that that I've been able to do that a lot of other people either couldn't or wouldn't. <laughs> That's a whole other story. Yeah. Right. You yeah. get a lot of wear and tear out of youth. That oh, you yeah. can't get out of a wisdom person because a wisdom person has it in their mind, but their body won't keep it. So there's always trade-offs. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I kind of like where I am right now. So I'm still young enough to do a bunch of crazy things. Um, well, let's take a break from it. I want to – we can talk news, but I, I think – have you looked into the new Mosaic FAA rule? Because I think aviation is about to explode. I think something really good is about to happen. FAA rule. Yeah, the mosaic rule. Well, let's take a break right now. We'll come back and uh, okay. uh, I'll, I'll tell you all about it, and you can tell me what you think. But uh, uh, you know, um, Action Radio is Action One. <laughs> you know, our airplane, Action Radio One. <laughs> this is what I'm going to call it. Nine oh nine. So we'll take a little break right now and be back, and I'll, I'll tell you all about the. Uh, I'm just running some stuff on FAA stuff. I think it's going to be fascinating. I really do. All right, back in a little bit. Greg Penglis here for my book, The Complete Guide to Flight Instruction. Everyone at some point in their life wants to learn how to fly. Few try. Even fewer go on to get a license. I believe a major reason for that is how we teach people how to fly. My book is designed to help you navigate the flight training system, but it's so much more than that. It really describes an entirely new way to teach flying. So if you've never tried a lesson or got discouraged in your training and quit for any reason, this book can help you. Don't be a rope pilot who just follows procedures. Be a thinking pilot who makes great decisions, who understands all the reasons why we do what we do. You can incorporate these principles into your own flight training at any time. The Complete Guide to Flight Instruction is featured on the Action Radio with Greg Pankless Facebook page and is available from Amazon.com.
Well, that sounds good. Even better. Okay, how about your car? If you want the best service for your vehicle, please talk to James at Florida Stores Automotive, conveniently located at 6715 Caroline Street in the historic district of Milton, Florida, right between the Milton Bakery and the Blackwater Trail. Whether you need an oil change or an entire engine replaced, this is the place. The phone number is 850-623-6651. That's 850-623-6651. Call, ask questions, and get the information you need. Florida Stores Automotive is a full-service automotive shop for both domestic and imports, modern and classic. It is a family-owned business here in our Milton community. Open weekdays from 7.30 to 5 p.m., Florida Stars Automotive is a convenient place to keep your car maintained and on the road. Ask them about Firestone Tires and the rotation and maintenance plan. Florida Stars Automotive. I go there. You should, too. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, Ruger and Glock, this is for you. Here at Action Radio, we are looking for sponsors. We have 30 and 60 second spots available for your announcements. And we have three minute live call-ins to talk about your products and services available. Action Radio is the next evolution beyond talk radio. Join us and let us help your business evolve. Think about being a sponsor of the future and not just a listener and help us help your business grow as you help us plunge headlong into breaking new ground here on Action Radio every day. This is Greg Penglis. So what is Action Radio? It is a radio show with its own citizen legislature. That's you, the listener. It is a fully interactive system of listeners, expert guests, social media, writing bills, legislator input, bill submission, lobbying, and citizen action. Action Radio is the future of talk radio using all the available technology in one completely integrated new system. You are listening to Action Radio Online with Greg Penglis. The webpage for all Action Radio shows and podcasts is blogtalkradio.com slash citizenaction. Please share our show with all your friends and family, both nationally and internationally. The guiding principle of Action Radio is this. We the people give our consent to be governed through writing the laws by which we are governed. Radio, dedicated to fixing everything. Yeah, that's why I'm not running for office. That was an interesting comment of uh, Richard Big earlier. Is you should run for office. I'm like, no, I don't want to do that stuff. I'm having too much fun here. Besides, I like legislating so much more. Because uh, if you run for office, if, if you're a legislator, you can't legislate. <laughs> it's like the, 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 you want to talk about a paradox? You want to talk about a contradiction? <clears throat> These people can't do what, they're, what they're, the voters do. They serve their party instead of their constituents. They have to raise money instead of legislate and debate. Uh, they can't sit up in the wee hours of the night you know, discussing philosophy and things. They've got to plan the next campaign trip. Uh, and they've got to meet the donors. I, I don't want any part of that. I don't think I'll ever run for office. Maybe governor. 
I don't think I'd be governor of Florida, Pianchi. Wouldn't that be interesting? Governor Penglis. Well, what do you think, Governor Penglis? Well, let me tell you. <laughs> it just sounds weird. Let me bring Pianchi back in the conversation. Well, yeah, it'd be, a new, it'd be something different. <laughs> and that's my resume. <clears throat> my, my rather strange tour guide, governor, <laughs> radio talk show host. <laughs> well, actually, tour guide and host have. That actually was an invaluable experience, spending eight years as a tour guide really help me with microphone stuff because I don't get flustered, you know, no matter what happens. And we have problems. You, you think you have problems on the air here. You know, when I had problems as a tour guide, we could be on San Francisco Bay in a duck. <laughs> you know, remember the duck boats? So I used to do that uh, as well as motorized cable cars. And we had a problem on a cable car. I got like 50 people on board and I got responsibility. You know, here, I, if I say something stupid, I just said something stupid. There, if I say something stupid and we have a, an issue or a mechanical problem, <laughs> you know, I, I told you uh, that, um, who was I talking to? I think I was talking to Bianca, our progressive reporter from, uh, from the left coast, that as a tour guide uh, in San Francisco by Ghirardelli Square, uh, no, somebody else I was talking to, someone else who had been there, uh, one of the cable cars actually broke an axle because <laughs> they, they took old San Francisco cable cars, put them on truck chassis, and some of them were pretty old, especially the one I drove, and it literally... Broken axle. We had uh, not the best maintenance, and it broke an axle right there by Ghirardelli uh, Chocolate Factory. It just sat in the middle of the street. Boom. There we were. Nobody got hurt. It wasn't a bad thing. It was just, it was just a bad maintenance. <laughs> it was pretty funny. So what do you do? Hey, everybody. I think we're halting right here. <laughs> Let's get another cable car. It was hysterical. But that's the kind of stuff that uh, you know, I had to deal with as a tour guide. So now nothing bothers me. Hmm. That should have been an adventure. It was an adventure. You said uh, it was really fun. Well, here's one thing, too. I, I told all my, uh, my tour customers for several years, probably the last, like, five years of, of this. I said, I'm going to be in radio one day. I said, you're going to be, uh, you know, one day you're going to be hearing me. I said, so I've, I have the standard invitation. I probably should say this more often, but anybody that was on any of my tours, call in. I'd love to talk to you because be, there, there were thousands of people that took my tours over those years. You know, and so they're out there all across the country, actually all across the world. So as we get worldwide in, so I'll say to you, anybody that took a tour with me, I'd love to hear from you because I told you, I told you I was going to be here one day and here I am. So, yeah. All right. Let's talk about the FAA. This is something, this is rare to say, but it's true. This is the government doing something incredibly correct, incredibly good, uh, good for people, good for aviation, good for our spirit, good for the economy, good for everything I can think of. There's no bad in this. So what the FAA is doing, they, uh, for, for a long time, they've had this new light sport aircraft category. Uh, so there's a license. It's a sport pilot license, and they have a whole category of air- aircraft called light sport aircraft because they wanted to make uh, aviation more accessible than the private license, which does cost a lot of money, takes a lot of time, uh, but it qualifies you to do a whole bunch of things. If you have a private instrument rating, you can fly in the clouds. If you have a, just a regular VFR visual flight rules private rating, you can fly anywhere you want, but you can't fly in the clouds. You know, you've got to fly with uh, either one or three miles visibility. And, you know, let me see if I remember 2,000 feet above, 1,000 beside, 500 below. Uh, so you've got to keep cloud clearance. So as long as you can maintain visibility and cloud clearance, you can fly with a private license. Uh, if you have instruments, like I say, you can go in uh, some pretty interesting weather. <laughs> you know, and as a flight instructor with a commercial multi-engine instrument uh, instructor's rating, you know, I could do pretty much anything I wanted with uh, single or twin engine airplanes. Uh, anyway, it was great. It was a wonderful time. Uh, loved every minute of it. Well, not every minute. <laughs> but anyway, but the point was that it was, it was tough for people to fly. And this is back, I was teaching uh, in the early 90s, specifically 1991 and 92. And so uh, uh, it was expensive then, but it wasn't as bad as now. Now the fuel price is prohibitive, cost is prohibitive. It's way above inflation. 
So the cost of flight instruction and renting airplanes is way above the inflation rate. It should not be as high as it is. Uh, but I figure if more people get into it, then the cost will come down, economies of scale and all that. And so what the FAA has done is they, they, they originally started with what was called the light sport aircraft category, which was a two-place airplane that weighed under 600 kilograms, which was probably 1,500 pounds. Okay. So you've got, and it was, uh, and you had restrictions. It, uh, it had to be able to stall at a slow speed. In other words, the air, you know, separating from the top of the wing. So you didn't have lift anymore. So the wing wasn't generating lift and you got to put the nose down. That's a stall. Um, they had other things they had, uh, the pilots could only fly with one passenger. They had to fly below 10,000 feet and they couldn't go faster than 120 knots, which is probably 140 miles an hour. It's very slow, very slow. Now the Europeans did it differently. They still had the weight requirement. They still had the 600 kilograms, um, which is, like I say, probably 1,500 pounds maybe. It's like 2.2. Whoever's good at math can figure it out. Um, They still had, uh, I think they they had either two or four plays. Uh, um, I'm not sure about that, but they had, uh, um, but they didn't have a speed requirement. And I don't even know if they have an altitude requirement. But the thing was, there's no speed requirement. Uh, The stall speed was higher. And these airplanes now, a whole new generation of airplanes has come out. So if you learn to fly, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, uh, you would typically learn in a metal uh, airplane that was heavy and underpowered. Cessna 150, two-seat, incredibly underpowered airplane, useless. Uh, that's how I learned to fly it. Um, the better plane I used to start teaching it was the 172, four-place, more power, 150-horsepower engine, four-place, pretty good. Still only did about 100, 105 knots. It wasn't very fast, um, but it was a great trainer. And so I had a lot of time in 172s, instrument training, good for instrument training, good for all kinds of things, but slow because they had struts and gear and a bunch of stuff and the, the wings were too big. <laughs> so, you know, uh, but great airplane. Uh, the other one, the low wings would be the, the Piper Cherokee or the Warrior or the Archer, any of those basic ones. So the low wings, you had the high wings. That was it. The choices. Um, usually, you know, barely powered, very expensive and uh, well, not that expensive then. Anyway, those are typical trainers. Well, so the aviation's gone through a revolution with carbon fiber. So the aluminum, aircraft aluminum and steel, a lot of that has been replaced by carbon fiber, particularly the aircraft aluminum. Well, it, these new airplanes weigh half what they used to. And they have this new kind of engine called a Rotax. Now, Rotax is a gasoline, car gas-powered engine that generates, it probably runs at about 6,000 RPM, and the prop runs about you know 1,500 to 2,000. Um, so they're geared down, but they're amazingly efficient they're low cost and they're extremely lightweight. So engines weigh less, the airplanes weigh less. These things are really light. Uh, and, and contrary to popular myth, turbulence is not caused by the weight of the airplane. It's caused by the, uh, the wing loading. And uh, I think it's caused by the wing loading, you know? So anyway, so a big airplane is going to bounce just as much as a little airplane because they're still moving in the same air. <laughs> okay. Uh, you can feel it differently, but uh, big airplanes do bounce, you know, seven sevens bounce, you know, one fifties bounce. Just because you have a small light airplane doesn't mean it's not, it's, it's going to be worse in turbulence. It's not. Depends on the wing, depends on the airplane. Anyway, the point of all this is that the FAA is changing the rule on light sport aircraft. So no longer will they be limited to 120 knots. Uh, you can fly a four-place. You only still carry one passenger, and they still want you at 10,000 feet or below. Um, but, uh, and they still want you flying visual flight rules. But as far as the speed, hell, you know, 250 knots. <laughs> you know, and that's, the, that's the, the maximum speed below 10,000 feet anyway. Uh, 250 knots is pretty good. You know, a lot of pilots would have uh, trouble controlling airplanes to go much faster than that because they got a plan for it. <laughs> you know, it's kind of interesting. But uh, Pianchi, I'm going to bring him back in the conversation now. Uh, for those of us that learned to fly those all-metal airplanes that were slow, 
um, ponderous, until you got into a retractable gear, in other words, where the gear sucked up into the airplane, uh, and you had a, what was called a, what oh, is still called a constant speed prop. So in other words, the propeller changes the pitch angle to maintain the RPM, and you can use greater or lesser power with the throttle. So you got two engine controls, the throttle and the prop. Prop controls the, uh, the RPM uh, by varying the blade angle uh, based on the power that you set with the throttle. So now these new airplanes have constant speed props. They have retractable gear. They weigh half or less what a standard older, older plane weighed. The engine weighs half or less, yet it develops the same power, 150 horsepower or more. So you can take an airplane that weighs less than half of an older airplane, put a Rotax engine in it that takes automobile gasoline, you know, that uh, still only has 150 horsepower, and that same airplane, that same two-place airplane is going to be over 200 knots as opposed to the Cessna 150, which is like 90 knots, or 172 is like 100 knots. So you're basically doubling the speed, having the weight, or cutting the weight in half, uh, and this is going to be fascinating. This is going to be great because the operating costs are nothing. These things, you know, burn five gallons an hour, which translates to about 30 miles uh, to the gallon. I mean, that's huge. That's what a car gets. That's what a car gets. On, that's what a small car gets on the freeway. So you're getting, air, you're getting air, car gas mileage in an airplane that's going four times as fast, <laughs> you know, over 200 knots, as opposed to a car, car doing like 60. What's that? The engine is made in South Africa, isn't it? The Rotax? I don't know where the Rotax is made. It could be. Wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me. But the Rotax engine's a revolution. I mean, it's a brand-new engine. Brand new carbon fiber airplanes, and these come with fully—they're only a couple hundred thousand dollars, which may seem like a lot, but when you consider that you know the carbon fiber is not going to rust, <laughs> you know it's strong, it's light. These things are going to have a great life. The Rotax engines are very little maintenance. You know they don't—they don't get—they don't, get, don't run. What the kind of wing configuration? Run. They low wing or high wing? Well, most of them are low just, wing. Uh, talk, I'll send you. you just, look uh, up. What's you that? talking? To, you talking about the engine? Yeah, the Rotax yeah, I've is heard the engine. engine, and you're absolutely yeah. right. I have a, yeah, I have a, a, a friend. I guess you call him a friend. And he flies a, a 172, and they use gasoline rather than aviation fuel. 100. Do they convert the engine? So that yeah, that would be cool, man. Yes. Yeah. Well, here's what's happening. Uh, you know, I want to. Do you know the guy that Mike that does Mojo Grip? He does all the aviation things. I want to get him on the show. Yes, I know him. I know I know him. He's out of uh, Atlanta. He's been okay. uh, someplace on the East Coast now. He's got a, a little dealership. Oh, okay. That's cool. He's so Nigerian, he by the way. Oh, that's interesting. Is he selling airplanes? Oh, what's he doing? What's his dealership? Yeah, he, his plane is that plane that has a parachute on it. Yeah. And I can't think. Most... Oh, sling. It's a sling. His is a sling. Okay. I'm not as familiar with his plane. I've got to look it up. But do uh, you know him personally, or you just know of him? It's a kit, too, by the way. Uh-huh. Now, do you know Mike personally, or, or, do, you, uh, or do you just know of him? I know of him. I remember okay. when he was uh, practicing with, with uh, simulators, and, you know, the next thing you knew, one thing led to the other. No, it does. Yeah, it's funny about that aviation thing. Yeah. No, he's someone. I, I'm going to try and get him on the show for a while, so I'll, I'll keep uh, keep looking into it. If you, if you find his dealership, I can call him directly. Uh, but he's a really good aviation person, really good the video producer. Anyway, uh, I'll look up the sling too. So most of these planes do have a ballistic parachute. And ballistic means it it uh, fires out of the airplane. 
And so you can do aerobatics. I believe the rule is if you have a, a ballistic parachute, you don't have to wear a parachute because most of these airplanes are aerobatic, these new sport planes. Mm-hmm. Look up the VL-3. It's a Czechoslovakian plane. And that's the one uh, that was the first one that I was introduced to. It's retractable gear. It's got a constant speed prop. It's got about, I think, 150 or 160. You've got a couple of options on the Rotax engine. It does over 200 knots. uh, And I believe it's aerobatic. And it has a glass cockpit. So for those that don't know what that means, a glass cockpit is all computer screens. So instead of having the old vacuum instruments that ran on a vacuum pump that would occasionally quit. (laughs) That's why a lot of airplanes had dual vacuum pumps, right? So they had a backup system. But a vacuum pump would suck in air and it would blow it over the gyros of your attitude indicator, which used to be called the artificial horizon. Uh, It would, uh, you know, combine with the static air um, and the the pitot tube, it would get your things like your airspeed, vertical speed, things like that. So those are the the air-based instruments, but the the gyro instruments, the magnetic compass and the uh, attitude indicator worked off a pump, which blew air over the uh, you know, the various jars so that they would, uh, you know, do what they're supposed to do. But now it's all computerized, so you don't have to worry about any of that stuff. Although I still, I still think they have a compass. Don't airplane, doesn't every airplane have, a, have a, an old, you know, kerosene-filled compass just in case everything, all hell breaks loose? Or you can put your own compass up there on the windshield. Yeah. On the I would do that. Do you know what I used to do students? One, one of my last tests with my students, when we fly back from, so flying back on a cross-country flight. So you take a student to a new airport. They're all freaked out because they don't know about it. When they fly back to the home airport, they're used to that. So you've got to make the return trip more interesting. So a lot of times I would just uh, cover up all the instruments, I think, except the, the altitude, because you, you don't want to vary too much in your altitude, especially when air traffic control is watching you. <laughs> so you want to get, you know, but I covered, I covered the airspeed. <laughs> you know, I covered attitude. I covered, the, I covered the gyro compass. So I left them with their altimeter. And their uh, magnetic compass. I said, okay, fly us home. Then we do what? So, yeah, go ahead, fly us home. Pitch and power settings. Fly us home. Use the magnetic compass. Okay. Now that got a whole lot more interesting. But it was, a great, it was a great test. And so all my students could fly on an altimeter and a compass. And they did just fine. It's amazing what you can do with a student. <laughs> yeah, altimeter, compass, and you got to have a map. <laughs> got a map. Got a manual charts. Yeah, forget the GPS. Yeah, the, G- yeah, the computer. What do you do when the computer goes out? So that, I don't know how they train for that because I see I have to learn how to use one of these screens. I've never flown. I've flown the old uh, what, what what do they call them? The, the vacuum instruments, the the, the the air gauges, or whatever they call them. Um, I don't know how to fly the new stuff. Well, yeah, so I'm that curious. was more fun. Uh-huh. It was more yeah, fun than well, learning. Than you got the Gorman, Gorman six fifty Gar- seven fifty. Oh, Garmin. Yeah, Garmin. Yeah, yeah. I think it's got, yeah. So now they put all the instruments, they superimpose them on each other on a computer screen. I think it came from the military with the HUD, the heads-up display, where they display all the, yeah. all the instrument information on the carpet. So you'd have your little targeting site, you'd have your altitude and speed, and you'd have, uh, you know, you, you sit on Top Gun all the time where they have that little arrow pointing thing, and once you lock on, that's, all, that's called heads-up display. So that's kind of cool. But think about this Well, now. you know the thing about the flying is that the most important <laughs> aspect of the trip is pre-planning yes and of course you know where you start off and where you're going but you also have to have check place checkpoints along the way mm-hmm. in case an emergency occurs and you know, uh, if you make it past yeah. the one checkpoint then the next one uh on your way to your destination is an alternative in case you have an emergency and uh all those things have to be planned, taken into play, and 
and so forth in order to have a safe a safe trip. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. I, know I agree with you. We talked a lot about planning. But you also have to be able to think on your two up there, and you, you can't get bogged down by too much stuff. Um, but uh, the problem with, the biggest problem with flying right now is the cost. People can't get into it. I mean, we're losing general aviation pilots at a ridiculous number. They're having trouble finding airline pilots because the only way you get airline pilots is if people can learn to fly. And first of all, kids don't want to learn to fly as much. They want to do computer geeky stuff. They want to be on TikTok. They don't want to fly airplanes. So the FAA and their wisdom, and they really, you know, of course, AOPA and other groups have been pushing for this for years, but they're going to make it accessible for regular people to be able to fly fast airplanes. Now, granted, if you buy one, they're about $200,000. But if you're only paying, you know, $5, if you're only burning five gallons an hour, that's five times, you know, I don't know what the current price of aviation fuel is. What is it, four bucks, five bucks, six bucks? How much is aviation fuel? Well, car gas. They burn car gas. Let's say $3 a gallon, maybe even three fifty. Mm-hmm. You know, three times, that's $15 for an hour's flying. That's nothing. So you cost your gas is way down. So here's the thing. People, very few people will be able to afford a $200,000 light sport airplane, the, the BL3, the Czechoslovakia one, for example. But the flight schools can buy one. Cost less than a production airplane. Well, yeah. So you got so, maintenance, you got your annual, and all those things. You know, yeah. there's a uh, organization, the Tuskegee Airmen, that uh-huh. pay, I think, it was ninety thousand a year for uh, young African Americans to get involved in flying. <clears throat> That's wonderful. Do you know? I actually knew a Tuskegee Airman. He was a flight instructor. Uh, and an airline pilot, and he was like a senior examiner. And he was at Oakland. He drove a 1948 Cadillac. Fascinating, man. Uh, this is back in when I was teaching, so this would have been like you know, the 90 to 92 period out at Oakland Flyers. So we also had a guy that uh, was a belly gunner in a B-17. And so I had uh, the op- Uh-huh. You know, there's an organization out there in Oakland that's ran by a black man. I can't think of it. Reese, Bat, no, I can't think of his name. The organization is called Oakland Youth First, and huh. they also offer aviation instruction and also marine instruction, too. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, introducing no, I, people to marine huh. activities, campuses, and so on. Wow. Yeah, I mean, like I say, I'm always, always looking for new people on the show because, you, you know, it's, it's, this is a fun place to be. But um, – as far as aviation, yeah, I used to fly out of Oakland Airport where Amelia Earhart departed, the historic part. So Oakland mm-hmm. Airport is really two. Oakland's two airports. There's the old airport and there's the new airport. The new airport has, you know, Southwest and, uh, you know, they got, they got a, a 10, 11,000 foot runway, big one. You know, the, the runways in the old airport are like five, four and 5,000 feet long, I think. I think maybe about five. Anyway, so you get two runways there and they're kind of close together. So you, you, you can do parallel landings, but it gets exciting. Uh, they usually use one or the other. Uh, anyway, but that's where, that's where I learned to fly, and that's where I taught flying. And it was a great airport to fly out of because you had a nice overcast layer. So we got to teach students, even early students, you know, how to get a little cloud time, you know, breaking out of the fog because the fog was really smooth. So it, wasn't, it, was, it wasn't bumpy, and it wasn't that thick. So that they get a couple of minutes uh, or like five minutes of uh, cloud time when we were departing Oakland for a practice. Well, you know, another, uh-huh. another way to control cost is you – any way you look at it, you got to have a means. But uh, they got these uh, – and these villages, aviation village, yes, where people uh, have a central uh, a landing strip, and you just taxi to your house and park your plane in your garage. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, they had that in Florida with amphibians. Uh, those that bought the the Icon A5, for example. Oh yeah, that's something else too. So, mm-hmm. so an amphibian is a plane for, for, for those out there. An amphibian can land on water and land. So one of the planes, although it got really expensive, and I have a friend that owns one, so I, I want to get him on the show. Um, so local aviation, you know, entrepreneur, you know, impresario. Anyway, so he has an Icon A5, and I'm trying to get a ride in it. Um, you know how it goes. Um, but uh, and it got to lose a few more pounds so we can, we can make weight. Uh, so that, that's another reason I'm losing weight. Anyway, so but the A5 has wheels that tuck into the airplane. The bottom of the airplane is shaped like a boat. It's got a high wing. The engine's mounted high away from the spray. It's like, a, like the old Republic CB. So you've got the engine facing backwards. It's a pusher prop. And so they cut away the, the bottom of the airplane so that you can uh, have the prop up high. And it's got just a, like a mid-tail. Uh, and it's a cool airplane. And, but it's got a Rotax engine. It's got like 150 horsepower Rotax. Mm. And so, and it can take off from the water and you can actually take the, like the side windows up, make it like a convertible, <laughs> you know, and if you just like scuzzing around, it's a really fun airplane. I, I don't know what happened. The company had some problems, but uh, that kind of sport plane, especially in Florida is great because, you know, you could have your Jeep in your garage and have your Icon A5 other part and you just, you know, basically uh, roll it down to the water, <laughs> you know, hop in, start it up, taxi into the water, retract the gear and take off. Oh boy. <laughs> you know. I mean, this is this is fun. So that's part of the reason for being here. So, well, so the yeah, flying is, is fun, but it's also it's, there's things you just have to do. You just can't go ahead haphazardly. No. And uh, you got to pay attention all the time. Mm-hmm. And when you get tired, you got to go rest. You can't drink water within beyond an hour of your destination because you have to pee. So <laughs> it's a <laughs> yeah, you got to think about that. Well, I've done long flights. I flew across the country twice uh, in a Cessna 310 uh, from Oakland, uh, one to uh, New York, and the other time that's I went nice to the Bahamas. Oh, it's a beautiful plane. Oh, I love the 310. 310 is my favorite. Um, but that's the biggest plane yeah. alone, so, you know, that's why it's my favorite. But, yeah, I had, I had a couple of students. We did literally cross-country. We flew from Oakland to New York, and then flew from uh, – another student flew from Oakland. We actually ended up in Bimini. We ended up uh, in some key that I'd never heard of. Um, it, I'll tell you, here's a flying story. And this is, this is kind of fun. We got like 18 minutes left or 20 minutes left. So we might as well have a little fun. So we're flying into uh, one of the AOPA conventions that was in New Orleans. And mm-hmm. it was, it, New Orleans, as you know, it gets thunderstorms in the summertime, right? So it's, it's, it's total instrument conditions. It's, it's, cl- we're in the clouds. And uh, we, we get uh, what's called the automatic terminal information service or automated, the ATIS. So in other words, there's a tape recording for, mm-hmm. for the weather. So uh, especially if you have two pilots, it's great. One pilot gets the recorded information. The other pilot listens to the, the main frequency. And so if you only have one pilot, don't do that. <laughs> get, the, get the tower to tell you the weather. <laughs> so you, you don't want to leave, the, you don't leave the, uh, uh, the approach or the tower frequencies. Anyway, so it says thunderstorms all quadrants. You know, and I'm like, oh, okay, that's interesting. <laughs> you know, here on the clouds. Now, we didn't have radar. We didn't have a storm scope, so we had no idea where the thunderstorms were. So a lot of planes, the sophisticated ones, especially the twins, will have something called a storm scope. I don't even know if they use that, which registers where the lightning strikes are. So it registers lightning. So, of course, you don't fly into the lightning strikes. You, you know, you fly hopefully between them where the thunderstorms aren't. So we had no radar. So I call up a New Orleans approach or whatever it was, and I said, uh, Cessna, yada, 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 the, you know, we've got uh, – I said, we're not radar equipped. You know, I said, we're approaching land, you know – whatever the airport was, I think Okeechobee somewhere airport. And I said, we're not ready or equipped. Can you uh, possibly, you know, keep us away from the thunderstorms? I'm like, yeah, no problem. Uh, thank you. <laughs> so he said, oh, we'll give you advisories. 
And so then the next airplane behind us said, yeah, we're not ready or equipped either. Okay, you can get advisories too. Next airplane. Yeah, can you do the same for us? Six airplanes called in saying they didn't have radar. Now, the, the, the lesson in all this is that pilots refuse to ask for help when they should. So if you're not radar equipped, you're flying into known thunderstorms, all quadrants. You don't know where they are, and you can't find them because you don't have the equipment on board. Why would you not call air traffic control and ask for help? I use that lesson for the rest of my flight. Well, training. yeah, I, I wouldn't fly through those storm. I'm putting myself on the ground. That well, yeah. goes right back to your pre-flight, pre-flight planning. Uh-huh. Well, except that if you fly for a long flight, weather changes. So sometimes you can plan the best things in the world, and you still might have you know, massive weather changes. That's why you monitor it as you're going, and you may have to change your destination. I've done that. Oh, can't fly there. Let's go over here. Okay. <laughs> you know, yeah, you got to do that. Yeah. And you I know, we got version. enough airports in the United States. Uh-huh. And you know, the FAA pay you, will pay you for that airport for every time somebody lands. Did you know that? I didn't know that. But here's what I'm thinking. How they make money. This, oh, that's interesting. This might be more for, for the general audience that doesn't fly. First of all, you all need to learn. <laughs> well, maybe some of, some of you don't, but most of you should at least try it. But this is going to be a huge growth because we've got all these little airports out there that are dying because nobody's flying. It's too expensive. And if these flight schools can buy, what, what would you rather rent? If you had uh, you know, money to spend on an airplane, would you rather rent uh, a Cessna 172 that does maybe 100, 105, 110 knots? Or would you rather rent a new or you buy light your, sport aircraft? And then it would, What's that? Yeah, it makes it cheaper for you learning because you fly on your own plane. Well, no, it's not a question of buying it, but the flight schools are going to buy them. They're going to buy several of these because they're going to rent like crazy. And here's the thing, too. Now, this is something I wrote about my book that uh, everybody, 30th anniversary of the Complete Guide to Flight Instructions next year. So I'm, I'm hoping to get it back in print. Uh, it's been out of print for a little bit. Um, but... Um, what I'm hoping is that, uh, you know, as aviation grows, this book will become more popular. Because one of the things I advocated in the book is that people learn from their first lesson on retractable, retractable airplanes with constant speed props. Yeah, it's going to take them longer to solo, but who cares? As far as the license goes, it's going to take the same amount of time, probably. And they're going to get, uh, they're going to be training in the plane they're going to fly. Because nobody, nobody sticks around. Well, some people do. But no one, most people do not fly training aircraft with their families because they don't carry enough. They don't go fast enough. So they're going to get to retractable gear airplanes with constant speed props. Anyway, generally uh, a 200 horsepower, like uh, the, the Piper arrow. Appropriate example, 200 horsepower, retractable gear, single takes four people throwing some baggage, you know, depending on your weight as to how much fuel you can carry. The trade-offs you carry two people, light baggage, you can carry full fuel, fuel tanks and go a long way. Most four place airplanes are really two place with baggage. Uh, the, that's how I see them. Anyway, um, but the thing is, you could uh, rent that or, or like a Cessna Cardinal or a 182 or things like that. Um, Beach has some well, airplanes too, you know, yeah. But those are expensive. Craft expensive. Yeah. Real yeah, Beechcraft expensive. <laughs> I'm saying this is that if you learn how to fly, uh-huh. buy your small plane, and that will save you a lot of money when the time comes for you to do your wet training. And yeah. that's your, I don't know what is, it still requires 40 hours of wet training and 40 hours of classroom. And that saves you a lot of money. Now, see, planes hold their value if yep. you buy the right type of plane. Now, if you want to buy a plane that's at the end of this annual and you got to put that money in to have an engine going over and everything else on the plane, well, mm-hmm. then go ahead and do it. Get your life out of it. 
Another thing that I would recommend, somebody get like a 125cc motorcycle and break it down where you can put it in the plane, and when you get where you're going, you can take it out and poke <laughs> the forks back onto it, and now you got your transportation. You don't have to depend on local taxi cabs or anything like that. So, you know, what I found when I traveled around the country is that most of the, the FBOs, or what they call fixed-based operators, they have cars you can borrow. And that, this is something that they oh, do to me. They do, yeah. This is great, yeah. right? So they have, they have those old beater cars, right? So you land at some podunk airport. Uh, I'll say one of my favorites was Tucumcari, New Mexico, the town that time forgot. So I ended up there because of weather. <laughs> you know, And uh, so we ended up there uh, with a student uh, flying back from Oklahoma on another uh, cross-country trip. And so we landed at Tucumcari, New Mexico, and they have the, the, the teepee shops, the curios, the, 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 the Indians everywhere, the whole bit. It was like something out of the, the 1930s or 40s. It was great. Anyway, so we get to the FBO, and I said, well, we, we need, you know, cabs, something like that. I said, well, we've got, we got a car you can borrow. I said, really? You, know, you trust us with your car? I said, look, we got your airplane. <laughs> oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> so I was like, you'll bring our car back. Uh, and so they did. They just let you borrow a car. And it was great. And I wouldn't think of that, but apparently that's uh, that's because where are you going to go? You know, you're going to fly up the next day anyway, or, or within a couple of days. So you, you borrow their car and uh, you bring it back, and life is good. They get you back to the airplane. You yeah, fly away. You, you buy, you buy gas. Yeah, town and then look around. Yeah, and, you yeah. Know, tour. Yeah, overnight stop. Actually, you know, it was great. Uh, uh, then, if you want to, you uh-huh. can like when you fly in Oshkosh or down the Pensacola on those mm-hmm. air shows, you can camp out under your wing, get a tent. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, th- this is really, I've never been to Oshkosh. I want to go. Um, but I, I want to do a lot more aviation stuff anyway, as, as, uh, as the show increases in income and I can do these kind of things. But I think uh, a lot of those older airplanes, they're getting old anyway, but I, I can see um, a lot of the old Cessna's Pipers and, uh, and Beechcraft being replaced by these modern ultralight carbon fiber Rotax powered airplanes that are half the weight and twice the speed. And are going to cost mm-hmm. operating costs going to be much less. So if you had the cho- like I say, if you had the choice of renting uh, two hundred, I'll say mile an hour, but we'll say two hundred knots for those that don't knots. If you if you if you had a choice of renting for the same price a two hundred knot airplane versus a hundred knot airplane, and you wanted to go somewhere, which I mean, this is a no brainer. Which one are you going to rent? Well, yeah, you're going to want to get there faster because the less you're in the air, the cheaper it's going to be. Exactly. Now, if you're just flying for time, you're building hours, then you don't care how much, you know, because you've got to build a certain amount of hours. That's a fixed cost. But if you're flying to get places, as my old instructor said, the reason we fly airplanes is because they're fast. <laughs> you know, we want to go places. So if I want to go somewhere, if I want to go, if I have like an island, you know, in the Bahamas that I frequent, you know, on my weekends, I want to get there fast. I'm going to hop in my, uh, you know, my VL3 or whatever I've got and, and race out to my island right after the show on Friday. <laughs> you know, and in fact, the air traffic controllers probably recognize me after a while. Oh, Greg, yeah, how was the show today? Yeah, it was great. Okay, fine. <laughs> you know. But the, I think well, there's a lot of things you can do. You can fly to Europe. You just got to go far enough up north about the Nova Scotia mm-hmm. where you can fly across, I guess it's Ireland, I'm not sure. No, it's Gander, and Newfoundland, then you make some and, and Shannon Island. You got to go to Gander, Newfoundland. That's the furthest point. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's right. East. Yeah. Yeah. So Gander, Newfoundland is the furthest point east uh, in North America. And the closest point west in Europe is Shannon, Ireland. That's the first. Uh, so I don't know how long that flight is from Gander to Shannon. 
But that's what the old airlines, the prop jobs, the prop airliners, that's what they used to do. They'd land in Gander, refuel, and they fly to Shannon, and then they go, you know, where else? So with the and jets, sometimes they, you got to have uh, some spare tanks inside you, in your plane, which is easy to do. Oh, ferry Just tanks? Yeah. And, of course, you got to have your 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 emergency in case you have to ditch. Mm-hmm. Well, that was the whole idea with the flying boats. Remember the uh, the Sikorsky flying boats and the, the China Clippers and those things? They were flying boats because if they had engine problems, because the engines weren't as reliable, you know, in the 20s and 30s, um, they used to uh, they could land on the water and it'd be fine. They could land around the ocean, mm-hmm. and wait for a ship to come pick them up. You know, so it was a great safety procedure. Then when we got more reliable propellers, than they had or propeller engines after World War II, then they started flying, you know, land-based air, aircraft only. And of course, when the jets came in. My favorite being the Boeing 707. I, I'm sorry for folks that never flew on a Boeing 707 because that was, that was the balls. That plane had guts. When you took off in a Boeing 707, you knew you were flying. It was really exciting. So I'm sorry for those that don't know the pleasure of uh, turbojets, that only know Fanjet 737s. They're nice, but, you know, don't like to take off in a 707. It's just a, it's just a different experience. Anyway, do you remember those? You must have flown a bunch in them. I wasn't flying too much. In, I never flew too much in a 707. Really? Oh, that surprises me. Not that I can recall. Oh, okay. Well, you'd know. Uh, they're, 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 they were something else. Anyway. Um, yeah, they were the premier of 707. Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, then the DC-8 came out. Uh, so you had two four-engine jets. And then I remember when the 7, uh, 747 came out in 1970. I was one of the early people, one of the early passengers on that because my folks were in Australia at the time. And my folks wanted to go back to the United States and Canada for a trip. So we, uh, we caught a 747 out of Hawaii. It was supposed to be 707. My parents didn't want to fly on the new airplane. Oh, it's too big. And, of course, they booked us on one. I'm like, let's go. This is going to be great. <laughs> you know? So we hop in this 747, and uh, it was massive. I spent like 15 minutes walking around it just in awe once we got up to cruise altitude. And they had a lounge upstairs. My folks, my folks had money until, until they got divorced and other problems. But uh, so we, when we flew first class when I was a kid, you know, it was the last time I ever did that. But uh, I got to go in the lounge. We walked up the spiral staircase to the upper lounge of the 747. Oh, my God, it was unbelievable. It was great fun. Those were good days. But I was a kid then, <laughs> 10 years old. Yeah, that was a lot of fun back in those days. I had several people that was uh, Alice, Al, uh, Roy, huh. Virgil. Archie. Is it family or friends? No, they're friends. Do you guys have a flying club? That was a, a black flying club, yes. I wasn't part of it, but I, I knew of it. Huh. Well, that's interesting. There's a lot of black flying clubs that, uh, you know, you, they don't get no notoriety, but... Uh, well, now here's uh, yes, well, let's think about this for a minute because I think as gun ownership has increased, now of course the expense is different, obviously, but uh, you've got black gun groups, you've got gay gun groups, you've got women's gun groups. There's a huge increase in gun ownership and a huge increase in people that uh, have things in common that are forming different gun groups. Remember Shirley from? Uh, you have. Uh, I'm trying to get Shirley black back, by the yacht. Way. You oh, have black really? yacht clubs too. Oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. That sort of defies the stereotype, doesn't it? If black people are victims, how can they have a black yacht club? <laughs> that actually, we got to do something. We got to do something. You're with absolutely that. right. Yeah. You know. 
How am I? How do they speak do? like uh, they speak like a rich white person? You have to stack? <laughs> this is. But I gotta know. You gotta send me information on this. We we gotta get a black yacht group on the show. That would be hysterical. So do you feel like a they have to in North no? Carolina? Really? You got black resorts. We need a black resort. Yeah, white people can't go there. Thing, but you don't hear about it. Oh, just black owned. Oh, okay. Yeah, they black owned. They black owned resorts. So here's a question for you: what, What's the black slang for white people? I guess honky. Because you know, Hawaiians call us howlies. Well, that's, that's from a certain group. Oh, okay. Like move, for instance. I was just reading about them. That's from a certain group, like move, and those groups are dying off too. By the way. Yeah. Extremism, you know. Yeah, it's too bad. Well, I mean, it's too bad they're extremists, but that's okay. Uh, well, what what's, is the current slang? Is, is like a word I don't know? I mean, I'm curious now. <laughs> I, I don't know why I thought of it. Well, I don't know because you know, uh, I don't know what what the current slang would be. Like it used to be cracker and so on and so on. Cracker, that's I right. Yeah. Tell you because young people that I be around don't uh, indulge in that type of uh, of mental thought. Oh, that's good. Well, I think younger folks, until you teach them how to be prejudiced or teach them that there's an advantage in it, generally don't. But I got to get a black yacht club up. You know, it would be great if Trump showed up at a black yacht club. <laughs> Wouldn't that be fabulous? With his with his like, well, captain's he would be cap. welcome. I know he would, but it'd just be interesting. Well, again, this defies the stereotype. So, so the Democrats, if they're always pushing that, you know, that if you're black in America, you can't succeed, you can't do anything. Of course, we know this is a bunch of nonsense. But I think a black yacht club, the epitome of of, of the upper crust of society. Yes, I mean, you know, I wonder if you go up to the black yacht club and they say, "Hey, welcome, come on into our club." You know, we have two martinis and lunch will be luncheon will be served. I mean, I just the, the the potential, the reversal stereotype here is humor is just hysterical. I, I I've got to find out. I'm really curious. I'll try to get you some information on this. Yeah, sure that'd be great. Facebook. Well, let's get him on the show too. <laughs> you know me. I'm, I always talk to everybody. Hey, I've got a progressive socialist trans mm-hmm. person on the show now. I mean, there's no we don't have any bounds. I'll talk to everybody. I don't have to agree with them. I just like talking to people. So. What do you think is going to happen? Let's get back to my, my original premise. You have well, not black uh, towboat comp- owners uh, down in the Gulf is one person that I oh, know sure. of. You, you no, got major see, black uh, uh, solar installation uh, buildings. No, but that's, that's, not, this, that's not that's the, the humor potential is not as great as a black yacht club because that stereotype. You know, you ever see the movie with uh, Overboard with uh, Kurt Russell and mm-hmm. Goldie Hawn? And Edward Thomas, or Edward something, one of my favorite actors, where he played the rich white guy. He says, I've got lots of guns. I've got lots of women. I've got a yacht. You know, bunch of, he spoke in, in the, the traditional you know, rich white accent. And I'm just wondering. You got black container ship owners? Yeah, but no, but, it, but well, it's, a, it's not a symbol of the rich. It's, it's not a rich symbol like a yacht is. See, a yacht is the upper crust, the upper echelons, the, you know, who, Jeff Bezos owns a yacht. You know, really rich people own yachts. So this breaks the stereotype. And I'm sure, you know, black football players and entertainers and people have yachts. I mean, I'm not, I'm not questioning that. But it's just the idea that I remember yeah. when, uh, when Jimmy Carter went after, he had the luxury tax. He, he taxed yacht owners, a luxury tax. So what happened? Well, all the, all the yacht makers lost their jobs and, you know, European boats took the place in the market. That's all it did. But it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's one of those... 
a yacht is a, is a stereotypical symbol of not only rich, but aristocratic, domineering, prejudiced, snooty, snobby rich. That's why the, the Yacht Club, I think, is such a fascinating example over anything else that, that uh, uh, Black Fox might belong to. You know, it'd be, it'd be if we had a, uh, you know, the Latino Yacht Club or, or any, uh, any, I don't know, it's, I just, I love this idea. I think it's, I got to explore this. This is fascinating. Anyway, so let me get back to the gun analogy. So as gun ownership has grown and all kinds of different groups have grown up around this, uh, gun ownership is huge. I think the same thing's going to happen with aviation with these new airplanes. If the flying schools start buying them, if the rental cost drops way down, because these things cost, you know, a fraction of what a traditional airplane costs to operate, they're going to make money. More people are going to start flying. They're going to learn to fly. And a lot of these small airports that you talked about a little earlier, they're going to come back to life because all of a sudden pilots, you know, they can go 200 knots, you know, 200, over 200 uh, nautical miles per hour. You know, if their speed is over 200 knots, they're going to get a lot of places really fast. So that's a thousand miles in five hours, a thousand nautical miles. Well, you're going to have more. You're going to have these mm-hmm. aviation communities. That is the ultimate, you know, aviation community where you can uh, have a hangar, a garage mm-hmm. for your plane right there next to your car. Oh yeah, garage. but that's but that's 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 like the yacht club. That's that's rarefied. There's not a lot of folks can afford that. But I think a lot of people would be afford able to afford going out to the little airport. Flying these light sport aircraft, learning constant speed props, learning retractable gear as their first airplane, maybe the last airplane too. I mean, who knows? So they could, you could spend a lifetime flying these things, uh, you know, being able to take their family. And they're going to have four plays. So we need to change the light sport rules so they have four place airplanes too. Or at least get a, they might get a private license. Then they can fly a four place or a six place. They get a multi. They can fly a twin. If you've got a big family, you get uh, four people in baggage and fuel, you might want to get a, like a 310 or a Beach Baron or, uh, you know, some of the other twins. If you got a little less, you might get uh, Piper. Uh, have some uh, big decent twins. you got to do weigh the cost. You well, know, it costs it. a lot of money. They tie, they tie down outside, but they have a hanger. You're talking about about five, $600 a month, or maybe right. more. So you've got – But so that's where the – airport community come in it's not there you you pay for the maintenance of the runway sometimes they dirt runways a grass runway so yeah a lot of planes can handle that too yeah especially the, the old tail draggers well but you got one there in georgia yeah outside of atlanta that's close uh-huh. to here I think this is going to be a boom. I think there's going to be a, a huge development in aviation because of this. I think that a lot more people are going to learn to fly. It's going to be more exciting to learn to fly. There'll be a lot more facilities. A lot of these small airports will develop. And I think this will be a, a great activity for people because if you're only paying, you know, uh, what, a Rotax engine, you know, burning let's, let's five gallons an hour. Let's say it burns 10 gallons. Let's say you're, you're, you burn up the sky. You're burning 10 gallons an hour. That's still 200 miles in that hour, more than that, because it's nautical miles. And you know another thing, you can have uh, your, your own uh, land and your own grass strip. Well, these things take off in a very short space. Yeah. So here's the thing. So, so my dream all depends on my income. If Action Radio explodes and I get amazingly rich, I'm buying a jet. That's just the way it goes. So and I'll, if I can afford a jet, I can afford a hangar. <laughs> you know, so if this becomes a multi-million operation, then I'm gonna I'm gonna really have fun, and I'm gonna learn to fly all the World War II airplanes. I got I got plans for all this kind of stuff. If if it's not as big as that, and I can afford a light sport airplane, I'm gonna get one of those. What I'd really like to get is a turbine powered. Uh, and then the mid, if I get mid millions, right? Then I'm well, if you're gonna have this, you gotta have an airport. Well, I got an airport nearby. We've got an airport right nearby. We've got an airport five miles away from me. Yeah, you can't have no grass strip for no jet. 
No, I know that, but we need we might have to expand our runway. It's only like a three thousand foot runway, so I might need to. Well, the jet I want, the 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 um, the Viper Jet Mark II, uh, is a uh, two place jet. Doesn't require a huge runway because it's ridiculously overpowered. It's got a twelve thousand foot per minute rate of climb. Oh yeah, baby. Yeah, so uh, yeah. You gotta have a you gotta have a long runway with a jet. Not this one. No. They don't get off the ground like a propeller does. Well, then now there's also these turbine airplanes. So this is another thing, too. Like they're taking home builds, like the, the glass airs and lances, and they're putting turbine engines on them. So for those that don't know, a turboprop is a propeller, but it's actually a jet engine inside. And the jet engine is geared down to turn the propeller. Much more efficient than jets burn like half the fuel. And the speed is fairly comparable. You know, you can get 300 knots out of a turboprop. Uh, whereas a jet might get four to 450. The jet's still faster, but they're burning twice as much fuel. So if distance isn't your issue, you know. But there's a lot of exciting things happening in aviation. I'm really glad we did this segment because uh, I, I think for people, you know, once this rule passes and the flying schools start putting these exciting airplanes in and people start learning to fly on fast airplanes and they get used to fast airplanes right at the beginning, there's no adaptation. To, they don't have to learn to fly again. With a fa- See, right now you've got to learn to fly a slow trainer. Then you learn to fly again when you get retractable gear and uh, props. So why wouldn't you just start with that? Take a little longer to learn the first time, but you don't have that transition later on. I think that'd make more sense. What do you think? Yeah, I like the old steam gauges rather than, the, you know, the glass wasn't around when I started. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, it wasn't around when I started either. The old I don't know. It's, see, it's always good to learn the old hard way than the easy come natural. Well, exactly. But I know the steam gauges because I grew up on those. I've got 3,000 hours. You know, I've got, I know those gauges. So that's not a problem. I want to learn the glass cockpit because I don't know anything about it. I'm curious. You know, yeah, it's, probably, it's, 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 it's different. Everything is there on the glass. You got your – everything is there that you normally would have. Your six-pack is there on the glass. Yeah, yeah. So it's easier. So and, and I'm sure it requires less maintenance because you don't have a vacuum pump. You don't have gimbals and uh, wheels spinning. You don't have the gyros. You don't have any of that you stuff. You still need your navigation radios, both of them. They yep. have one and they have two. Mm-hmm. And if in doubt, use your cell phone. <laughs> Pilots have done that. Now, they don't what? use VOR. VORs, is just, so I understand, they just about uh, going yeah, out of business. Are... VOR is a station that puts off a signal in radios yeah. and you can fly to it mm-hmm. using your instrumentation. You can fly to it. You can fly more away from it. You can use a cross-reference from another right. VOR to get a it. fix. You can do anything. <laughs> the VORs are great. Yeah. And so you got to know Morse code. Yes, you do. This is the vertical, uh, no, var- what is it, variable omni-range? What's, what's the V stand for? Variable omni-range, yes. Yeah. So anyway, it's an instrument, it's a, it's a ground station that sends out a signal in, in a circle. So it's 300, and they divide them up into degrees or radials. So 360 degrees. And it's just like a compass. And they're based on, and they set them for the compass. So zero is north. And so you can fly, fly away from them. You, you know, it's just a beacon on the ground. Um, mm-hmm. I actually go. I actually go back to the ADF. You want to get real antiquey here? How, could you fly an ADF automatic direction finder with the little needle? Automatic direction finder and uh, LME. What is uh, uh shoot? That's before my time. Distance, well, you must be old. DME distant DME. Yeah, DME. Distance, no, I know distance DME. Distance measuring equipment. Yeah. yeah. So, so we had all these different instances. So we had distance measuring equipment. You had a VOR. This is how I used to fly across country, right? 
And I fly in the clouds. We, right. we once. I remember taking off out of Kansas, and the rain was so hard it was louder than the engines. And we're flying along in our three ten, you know, fat and happy. <laughs> it was great, you know. But uh, yeah, I couldn't. Hear and the main, and another thing is you got to learn how to use your pre takeoff checklist mm-hmm. and set your altimeter to match the altimeter of the runway yep. before you take off. And check it regularly in flight because it's pressure changes. Yeah. yeah. Well. I can't think of flying again. We got to go flying. We really do. So if I get uh, Action Radio One, whatever it is, whether it's a turbine, whether it's a jet, or whether it's a light sport aircraft, we got to go fly. <laughs> we just have to. It's gonna be fun. I'm trying to get my grandson to get it, get his license. He should it's take you up. He can. Uh... Yeah. Huh? Well, look into. I'll, I'll send you a video on the light sport aircraft. I'll send you one on the on the VL3. And so you can take a look, and then just look up all the other ones. There's, a, there's some very exciting things happening in aviation, and I'm, I'm glad we did this hour I'm on it. I'm trying to get him signed up. I'm trying to get him signed up for introductory, so that uh, get him up there. His mama used to fly with us, but uh, that's something that he should know how to do. Yeah. It's fun. I bet you, well, flying is great. I bet you there'd be a lot more women pilots too. Uh, that's something I always had a lot of women students. Because uh, I treated women students yeah. like students, you know, I didn't, I didn't discriminate. I didn't, I wasn't any harder or any, any uh, easier. Uh, I treated everybody the same, you know. I mean, differences in teaching technique based on how they learn. But uh, now, we, in fact, it was interesting that the the people that requested spin training uh, were women. And you know, you yeah. can make money in uh, delivering parts. For instance, like for terminals, truck terminals, where they have breakdowns. The truck out there on the road, and they break down with an injector or something. You could fly that to them, and you could that could pay for that plane. Yeah, I don't want to use a commercial. The, yeah, there's a lot of well, yeah. The, I don't know what now, the rules are. Now that wouldn't be commercial. Oh, that okay. wouldn't just necessarily be commercial. You just be okay. performing a little service. Yeah. Well, you know what you else? There's a lot of volunteer. There's volunteer things too. There's there's doctors, um, pilot doctors. Um, that fly to different places with medical help. I knew a Cherokee Six used to fly a corpse. <laughs> oh, this is how I have to end my show Cherokee. on that note. So, so in other words, <laughs> yeah. carried by carried by the Cherokee Six, you be judged by twelve yeah. or carried carried by the Cherokee Six. Okay, fine. Carried by the oh. Cherokee Six. Yeah. Yeah, carried by six. Okay, little little aviation humor to end the show. Thank you, Bianchi. No, really, thank you for today. This, all right, I'll see really you. really good to have you on for, for, both, uh, for all the time you're on today. I do appreciate it. Thank you. I'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Yeah, probably tomorrow. At least I hope so. All right, so I've, I've played all the things I have to play. Uh, so what I'm going to do is play one more time our, our contact information uh, and then our musical theme, uh, our classical musical theme for today being Thursday. This was fun. Um, I enjoyed our guest. Uh, again, I think I respectfully, at least I hope I respectfully, uh, disagree with some of the things he was talking about uh, and ask some really good questions. And that's the whole point of the show. You know, I mean, people try to give me, you know, topics and talking points and questions. I, I just, that's not, I don't see that as my job. My job is to ask the things that nobody else is asking and to just inquire about whatever's on my mind. And that's kind of how it works. But he does have an interesting book, uh, the, the whole parallax or para, uh, what is it? The, I don't know. I mean, before I screw this up here, <laughs> yeah, let me do it right. Uh, the Paradox. There we go. Paradox of Debt, A New Path to Prosperity Without Crisis. Richard, Richard Vague, V-A-G-U-E. That's available. Um, I'm going to write an article. i got an article to write on uh, the I Am Spartacus moment where every uh, conservative, independent, libertarian, public official 
And anybody, any Democrat that cares about justice is going to have to say, uh, have to have an I am Spartacus moment and say, I am Spartacus. The election was stolen. 2020 election was stolen. So I need to work on that. I got a lot to do today. It's going to be a busy day, as always, between the shows. Got more guests coming next week. I got a high tech expert. Uh, that would be Jason Shepard. He'll be on Tuesday. And we're going to talk about uh, my big tech censorship bill. He's going to talk about, you know, breaking through big tech censorship. And of course, I know how. I've already written the bill. It was written two years ago. So I'll talk about that with him. And I'll get some information to Richard about our constitutional amendment and see what he thinks. Isn't this fun? <laughs> All right. Back tomorrow, Friday. Uh, we'll start off with Tara D and the Animal Shelter Report. Then we've got uh, Derek Park, the Financial Report. And the rest of the show is open. So who knows what I'll come up with between uh, now and then. Um, so take care. See you tomorrow morning, 7 a.m. Central Time, when we do it all again. Here is your Action Radio contact and website information. The call-in line is 215-383-3832. Our show site is blogtalkradio.com slash citizenaction. Same link, live and a podcast. Please share all our shows. We have live chat at the bottom of the broadcast page available worldwide. Sign in to your free account and type away. We have an internet Skype line where you can call the show worldwide also. Please see the broadcast page for our Skype name. Call in during the show to get approved. Our bill writing site is writeyourlaws.com. W-R-I-T-E-Y-O-U-R-L-A-W-S. Writeyourlaws.com. This is where anyone can write a bill and start the process of it becoming law. My paid and free subscription column is at gregpenglis.substack.com. Please consider a paid subscription of $5 per month or greater. For contributions to Action Radio, please go to givesendgo.com slash actionradio. We have over 20 Action Radio Facebook groups. Use the Facebook search window by putting in Action Radio to find our groups. My public email is greg at writeyourlaws.com. Please contact me about advertising on Action Radio and helping our mission of freedom. Thank you for listening.